Hello, and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. And today we are joined by... Jamie Hanna. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Jamie. Hi. It's good to be on this. It's good to have you. Jamie, Jamie is a good friend of ours and is our Northern Ireland correspondent. <laughs> yep. Uh, as, of, as of today. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the DUP later on. And... Jamie foolishly agreed to come on the podcast while we're very drunk at three in the morning. So yeah, I think I might have suggested it. Oh, okay, <laughs> I don't know well, why. even more foolish then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do foolish things sometimes. And I messaged you immediately about it, Kath, and then totally forgotten that I'd done that until you replied the next morning. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember waking up in the morning and seeing that and going, "Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. that seems that seems reasonable." It's also also genuinely a good idea, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you do have a master's degree in politics as well. Yeah, yeah, it's not just, you, it's not just you're our mate from Belfast. <laughs> yeah, like I, I can speak for all of the people of Northern Ireland because we all yeah. have one voice. Yeah, and that is me. Exactly. Yeah. Famously <laughs> united part of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Right, today, our first like topic and guess is going to be the conclusion to what we talked about last time, yeah. which is Ooh. those elections, what we were talking about, they happened. They did happen. And th- things went interestingly. Somewhat interestingly, um, yes. Yeah. I mean, going into it, I think we were predicting not the best night for Labour. Um, yeah, I can't remember. I've not really listened to the show, so I can't actually remember what I said. But I don't think I was saying it would have gone well. No, yeah, I never really listened to it once I've edited it. Twice, yeah, I mean, no, once while I'm recording and once while I'm editing, that's enough for me. Mm. I was there, uh, um, you know. Exactly, you were. But th- the thing is, is because it, of there were so many different local elections and regional elections going on at once, the results took a while to come back. And I think it's generally true that the earlier results mm-hmm. were pretty bad for Labour. But some of the ones which came back a bit later, you know, the following day, looked a little better. So it was kind of a confused picture. Yeah, it's the nature of local elections mm. that they're often uneven as well. But like they're going to be more uneven than yeah. a general election because it's yeah. not one campaign being fought. So, I mean, should we turn to Hartlepool first? Because that was one of the first results to be reported and certainly yeah. was treated as very significant. So, yeah, so if you don't remember, there was a by-election in Hartlepool and the polling in advance suggested that the Conservatives were going to win. Although the margin was different depending on where you looked. Um, Narrowly. In the end, they ended up winning quite substantially, yeah. Pretty convincingly, yeah. It's a long-standing Labour seat for decades and decades and decades. Conservatives Jill Mortimer got 51.9% of the vote. Labour's Paul Williams, only 28.7%. And then there was, a, there was an independent Sam Lee who got 9.7%. Um, and then various other smaller parties got around one to one and a half percent including Thelma Walker the Northern Independence Party candidate who had to stand as an independent you may remember um, because the party hadn't got their papers in on time she only ended up getting 0.8 percent which was much lower than I think a lot of people were expect Um, so yeah overall Mm. not a great picture for Labour I think I kind of expected them to lose pretty badly if I'm honest I think there was a poll right before that was talking about they might lose by 14 points. But I mean, in the end, it ended up being more than that. You know, it was absolute smashing. So, so it's quite unusual because opposition parties tend to win by elections, but by elections tend to have lower turnout than general elections, which tends to help the Tories. So it's two different trends. Do you have any 
any big takeaways from Heart of the Ball? Do you think it shows that Labour's Labour's lost the Red Wall, or I don't know what is it they say these days? Well, I think what what it kind of shows is that the a lot of the talk about what's happening in the Red Wall um, talks about uh, are Labour too left wing? Are they too right wing? I think kind of what it shows is that the long term decline of Labour over a long period of time in the Red Wall, what we call the Red Wall, um, has been happening under. Labour with all kinds of different political directions from the left, from the centre, from all over the place so it's kind of nonsense to say whether it's because if when people are analysing why is this happening, I think it, this the fact that Labour had been declining before and then also this decline continued now, even after they've had a change of leadership and a change of political direction, kind of suggests that it's not really got that much to do with how yeah. left went now the, the Labour vote in 2019 was about the same and in fact slightly higher than it was in 2015 under Ed Miliband hmm. Yeah, so it, it does kind of it is a bit of a... It's followed similar trends to a lot of, the, of these kinds of seats um, in that it's undergone a long-term decline with one blip where the decline quite dramatically, but very, very temporarily, reversed around the 2017 Also, it's election. interesting to note that in 2015, the reason Labour won was because the vote was split between UKIP and the Tories. After 2015, that vote, that UKIP vote collapsed, but it went about 50-50 back to Labour and the Tories. Whereas in 2019, the reason that Labour won is because the opposition vote, as it were, was split between Labour and the Brexit Party. But when the Brexit Party collapsed, the Tories got almost all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that, that I think, is the big difference. It's it's the difference between what happened after UKIP collapsed and what happened after the Brexit Party collapsed. You might think that those would be the same people. And in large part, they probably are the same people, but their political direction has been very different. Whereas, whereas UKIP's collapse saw people revert to their previous voting behaviour, whether it was Labour or Tory. After people voted Brexit, they seem then to have gone on to vote Tory, even if they'd previously been Labour voters. Probably the main reason for that. Probably the main reason for that is that the Tories have now defined themselves as mm-hmm. the as in the new Brexit party, right? And I think to a lesser extent because Labour uh, have sort of just by default ended up being the party of Remain just because the Conservatives have decided that they're the party of Brexit. Whereas after UKIP collapsed, th- th- that definitely wasn't true, right? The, the Tories and Labour were both defining themselves in 2017 as parties that have former Remainers and former Leavers in them mm-hmm. who are both saying we're going to respect the result. What do you think, Jamie? Um, it's definitely interesting. It's you know, it's one where, I don't know, almost like, I mean, mm-hmm. Labour's doing a lot of, sort of still-searching at the moment as well in general, mm-hmm. and... It's kind of one of, I mean, everyone's been saying in the media of kind of, we know what Bar stands for, we don't know what Keir Starmer stands for, and almost they'd kind of gone to, you know, UKIP slash Brexit party, whichever flavour of Farage they wanted, mm-hmm. to then, well, that was delivered by Conservatives, so therefore they kind of knew that and got that. There's maybe potentially a bit of there, um, while you've kind of got Keir Starmer that they are not familiar with, who, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll come on to that a bit more later, but I think the the... the the impression I'm getting is that people are finding Keir Starmer quite empty of politics, even if he does have policies. I think that that's what people are responding to, is that they don't care how many policies you've got. If you don't have an overall political message, they don't want to know, which is why 2017 worked really well. So on top of this, there are specific Hartlepool factors that are not necessarily about the broader picture. So there's, for example, the fact that this by-election was happening on the same day as the Tees Valley mayor election. Um, which has a quite popular Tory incumbent. So people that are turning out to vote for him are likely to also vote Tory, and they were turning out on the same day. There's also been a lot of problems with the local Hartlepool council, which until recently was Labour-run, 
um, a lot of people were very upset with the way the Labour Council is working, to the point where actually the leader of the Labour Council and a couple of other members defected to um, Arthur Scargill's Socialist Party um, uh, mm-hmm. last year or the year before, I think, because they, they were so fed up with their colleagues in the Labour Council. Um, I think there were some accusations of, sort of homophobia and transphobia among the Labour um, council members and oh, and the, the council leader and and I think two of his colleagues decided they'd had enough and they, they switched parties because of it so I think definitely that and then also like Paul Williams the candidate was sort of parachuted in he he was originally going to be standing for uh, for a mayoral position uh, no crime commissioner I think um, but then <laughs> the sort of the sort of central party decided bad, to yeah. appoint him I don't think there was a, a sort of long list for people to, to choose from it was kind of uh, an imposed... yeah yeah it was one person it was it was imposed yeah it was at the time, it was considered one of the one of the long string of things that people certainly perceive as the Starmer leadership stitching up various things that are supposed to be run by the local Labour Party in various parts of the country. One of them was that the CRP wasn't didn't pick the candidate. <laughs> yeah, and you you can read it as a sort of as part of the as part of a, a running problem in a lot of Westminster politics when it comes to the North. So there's been a lot of a lot more interest in the North since the whole Red Wall idea has become a thing. But it's the way it gets talked about in London is usually very shallow. There's a lot of sort of going on safari in the north without ever really engaging with what Northerners actually think about this kind of stuff. And the idea of taking someone of oh he was he was previously MP for Stockton South, that's also in the north, and it's fairly near Hartlepool, so therefore he'll know about local things. Not knowing <laughs> about the fact that it's that they're two totally different towns, right? It's the kind of shallow understanding of something like somewhere like the northeast is going. Oh, Hartley Paul stops and they're basically the same. <laughs> like, say, uh, the problem was previously MP for Southampton, so they decide, oh, I'll stand him in Portsmouth. Then that's near. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that would go really down well. too well, would it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or even even where I live at the moment, you know, Bath. You know, like someone who might be good to represent Bristol. Yeah, is a very different kettle of fish from someone who might might win in Bath because um, it's a very different place, mm-hmm. even though it's right next to each other. Oh yeah, no, I I, I I take that point very much. Um, on the sort of wider, um, and let's leave let's leave Scotland, Wales, and London to one side because we'll come to them in a minute because um, they have their own special things going on. Yeah, I'll make, the, I'll make the very quick point that one one broad thing that you can take away from all of these elections is that England, Scotland, and Wales are, have at least continued to be and probably have increased the extent to which they're operating as quite different countries politically now. Yeah, very much. But uh, sort of on the broader English picture, uh, across the council elections, the mayoralties and the police and crime commissioners, um, which is obviously three quite different types of election, and we can talk about that. But I don't know if either of you have any sort of general impressions of what the overall result might tell us about the direction of politics in this country. Hmm. So Labour does tend to do quite well in the uh, metropolitan mayoral election. Um uh, for lots of reasons. One that you can read is that um, they have this non-first-past-the-post electoral system where you can give your first choice and your second choice. Um, and there was what I can't remember where it was, but L- Labour won one of the mayoralties only on second preferences. They actually lost to the Tories in the first round, and then the second preferences handed it to them. And so this has immediately led to the Tories making noises about abolishing this, <laughs> replacing it with first-past-the-post, <laughs> uh, which would be bad. And it's also so, um, that chimes with the fact that is Labour, pro- I think, will Labour go along with that or will they oppose it too hard? Because it's also having the effect in London of relatively bolstering the Green Party. I can totally see in the next 10 years or so some kind of candidate challenging Labour from the left in London. But that's, they can only really build that up 
as a base over successive elections because people feel confident putting someone like Sean Berry as their first choice, knowing that they can put Sadiq Khan as their second choice so that they're not letting the Tories in. Yeah, that's, that's how I voted in, uh, in the for the West of England mayor and for the Avon Police and Crime Commissioner. I put Green first and Labour second. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you I mean, if you, did you see the results in Bristol? I thought were very interesting. Um, on the on the sort of Green Party, they the the oh yeah, it was, it was on the council. It was the Greens and Labour tied for first place, but in vote share, the Greens actually came first. Yes, and in terms of the mayor, the mayor of Bristol, so that's the mayor just of Bristol, not the combined authority for the West of England, it's very confusing, uh, but the mayor just yeah. of Bristol, who is Marvin Rees, Labour, was elected quite narrowly, I think he got, on second preferences, I think he got 56% of the vote, and the Greens got 44%, cool. which is very, very... Ruddy close. Like, yeah, and it's very different to you know politics in most places, obviously, but it does show that where the Greens are strong, they, they are really increasing their strength. I mean, um, they've been strong in Bristol for quite a while, but I mean, I don't know if you saw the council results mm. in the Wirral as well. There are a bunch of council seats in the Wirral that went to the Greens, um, which I don't think anyone would have predicted before the election, because it's, it's it's in that area that people are talking about as part of the Red Wall, which, you know, people are saying, oh, that's moving to the right. Well, certainly, it's it's, it's one of the bits of the Red Wall that is still very red and very wally. It's, it's the the greater sort of Merseyside area is one of the one of the one of the Labour places that is still really bloody solid Labour. I think there have been a few cases of um, of Liverpool Westminster seats that are overwhelmingly Labour and the Greens coming a distant second. I seem to remember when I was more interested in the Green Party a few years ago. I, I looked up all the places where the Greens came second at Westminster elections, and there was a few right. in Liverpool. Uh-huh. That doesn't surprise me. I, I think just the the animus against the Tories in Liverpool is still so strong. I can't mm-hmm. imagine them doing particularly well. It, certainly not in the sort of the city itself, maybe in the suburbs a bit. But I mean, uh, the mayoral picture overall looks really good. There were five single authority mayors. Labour held all of them. They went in incumbents and then they held all. And of the combined authority mayors, um, they went in with two and came out with five. Um, mm. The Tories held Tees Valley and the West Midlands. But um, they lost... Uh, the west of England and Cambridgeshire and Peterborough and the newly established mayor of West Yorkshire also went to Labour so the mayor's really good news the police and crime commissioners on the other hand if we were to turn to that extraordinarily bad news (laughs) you know really really bad Labour lost a lot of posts there Um, and at first blush they're quite sort of similar types of roles they're these sort of um, administrative layer that's between the local authority and the central government um, over sort of several different um, local authorities and yet very different results um, in the two types of race. Um, so I wondered whether either of you had any thoughts about that. You know, why Why would that... Why do you think that is? Hmm. Interesting. Police and crime commissioner elections tend to have really low turnout as well because people just don't really know what it is. That's the only thing I can think mm-hmm. of because that tends to help the Tories. What about you, Jamie? Yeah. I'm wondering, is it... I mean, I might be reading too much into it, because generally a lot of the, say, areas that would have, you know, had, you know, the sort of metro mayors, they tended mm. to have been areas that have maybe been impacted more from, you know, regional lockdowns and that kind of thing. So the Tories of the last mm-hmm. year haven't maybe done so well in those metropolitan-type areas. Um, and specifically, like, a lot of me- Labour mayors, you know, not necessarily in those particular areas. 
um, where they gained, but you know the existing ones came out quite strongly, and so maybe there was a bit of bolstering there. That's maybe something mm-hmm. I can read into mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I mean it is interesting. I mean, obviously, a lot of the crime commissioners uh, are in sort of rural areas, so so obviously the, mm. the Tories being stronger there makes yeah. sense. But it's weird that, for example, um, the police and crime commissioner for Avon and Somerset, which covers roughly the same area that the West of England mayor does, um, the Tories won quite substantially. Um, it, it was relatively close on second preference, but they um, they were still a decent ways ahead. Which is, I don't know, it's an interesting discrepancy to me. Um, on the other hand, uh, West Midlands, it was the other way around, actually. The West, in the West Midlands, Labour held um, the crime commissioner, whereas mm. the Tories won the mayoralty. So they I both have the same electoral don't system, don't they? They both have the first, the, the two preferences. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah they do. Which, which makes it interesting. I don't know, do, do you think people are splitting their votes? Do you think people are just not bothering yeah. to vote for? Them? I mean, I, do you think just sort of, anecdotally, I know lots would of people would be Labour voters just not bothering to vote for the crime commissioners because they don't really know much also, about them. There is the reverse. Um, just, just as possible. <laughs> just myself, I, was, I had, uh, I did a lot more. Um, I thought a lot harder about how was how I was going to vote on the council elections, and that meant that when it came to the police and crime commissioner ballot, which you're given at the same time, um, I just voted along party lines without really thinking about it as much so it made me kind of more likely to vote Labour so the thought that's just occurred to me about um, the Bristol mayor election um, it just it would be interesting if someone did some political science research on this because in a situation where you've got a significant minority of Tory voters faced with a second round that is Labour and Green who do they go for as their second choice there's there's 26,000 Tory voters who now have to put either Labour or Green as their second choice well, they don't necessarily have to, but no, do, uh, do, they, do they just not? Do they just not put a second choice? They might put Lib Dems, and but because other Lib Dems had already been eliminated, it didn't matter. That's true. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I would imagine at least some Conservatives, in maybe in the sort of more suburban, sort of fringes of Bristol, will probably put Greens as a second choice. I, there, there is a there is a constituency of sort of conservative leaning environmentalist types. Um, you know, David yeah, Cameron yeah. was one of them yeah, for a bit. Is. And there's, there's also just a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also just a certain amount of um, in a two-party system. If you're one, if you're a traditional supporter of one of the two main parties, you're just going to have more of an aversion to voting for the other main party than you are to some third party. But at the same time, I could imagine lots of uh, I could imagine Tory voters thinking, "Well, the Greens aren't they supposed to be more radical than Labour? I'll put Labour instead." It's just interesting. I could I can imagine the thought process. Of going either way, so I just I think I'd that's probably more see, likely. Maybe if there's any research, on, Tory voter. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be interested to have some data on it because it's one of those things yeah. that you can imagine it going either way. I mean, hmm. yeah. No, I agree. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. It's definitely an interesting one because I mean, uh-huh. as, as someone knows, we'll talk about Northern Ireland later. That's my topic. But uh, the you know, for <laughs> being from somewhere that's used to you know, pretty much every vote, a multiple mm-hmm. choice for preferential system. You know, do people actually you know in a lot of england get that you know you can do some tactical voting of you know say for example you've had you know labor long-term labor voters that didn't want to go labor this time you know based off whatever was happening in the national picture you know you could you know they tactically if they sort of knew about doing this type of voting a lot more you know they could have gone conservatives both because they've delivered x y and z but then labor second of a mm. well previously mm. vote labor and generally in terms of principles like them more that actually you don't I don't maybe you don't really have that sort of tactical savviness here among voters because 
it's kind of even though you know these elections do happen recently yeah they're not used to it quite a lot yeah they're not used to it and it's not I don't think it's not really advertised as much yeah. or publicised as a system. Some of the tactical voting is kind of a bit counterintuitive mm. with the two-choice yeah. system because it makes, like, if, if your preferences are, for example, you live in London and you actually like Labour more than the Greens, but the Greens are your second choice, you, it's still tactical to actually put the Greens first because they're not likely to get to the same yeah. plant. You should put, of exactly. your top two, which one you put first should be defined by which one you think is not going to win, <laughs> not by mm. which one you like mm. more. I mean, we could talk about London then. Um, the mayoral election in London, which is obviously a bit of a different beast to the mayors out, out in the, I was about to say out in the provinces, like I'm in the 17th century. Um, I've been reading, look, I've been reading a book about the English Civil War, okay? So I'm used to thinking of it as like London and the provinces is the way they refer to it. Leave me alone. I, I don't even, not even from London. Um, I hate elite. the place. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. never even lived in London. <laughs> no, I can't stand London. It's, it's there's too, too, too many people, too much noise. Don't like it. Um, like but yeah, the London mayor, the vote was really close. Sadiq Khan got 40% on the dot, and Sean Bailey, the Conservative candidate, got 35.3%. Given how much of a joke candidate he was, that was really close. <laughs> yeah, and then in, even in the second round, um, it was 55.2 for Sadiq Khan and 44.8 for Sean Bailey, which people were expecting him to come nowhere near that, so what the hell happened? It should be said that Sean, Sean Berry, the Green candidate, came third uh, with 7.8% mm. of the votes, beating Liberal Democrats, yeah. which is impressive. Yeah, it's a bit of a swing um, to... And as you say, suggests the, that the Greens are sort of on the rise Greens in Greens compared to last but, time. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, well, how did Sean Bailey do as well as he did? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? I mean, he basically repeated Zach Goldsmith's uh, performance from last time. But given that... Uh, well, then again, Zach Goldsmith's not really that competent of a political actor either, but... <laughs> Well, yeah. no, I mean, so I think the thing with... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think the, thing, the problem with Zach Goldsmith was that he didn't really have any control over his own campaign. Mm-hmm. So it was all being run by... Um, oh, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, another one. Cameron Spin Doctor, Damien. I'm having a senior moment. It's, it's been so long. This is the thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, too much has happened. Things turn over yeah, so quickly, yeah. you know, back in you the know, day. For some reason, my brain went so to Warren Buffett and now he's the, uh, the Australian campaign, post. completely not. But yeah, <laughs> I like legitimately. Sure, Why yeah, not? Warren yeah, Buffett. No, no. Um, Warren Buffett. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, famously ran. They might do better if he did it. But yeah, the conventional wisdom and, uh, for a while now is that, especially with running such a joke candidate uh, for this mayoral election, is that the Tories have basically given up on London. That it's that it's going to be consistently a heavily Labour city for the foreseeable future. Uh, but it's worth remembering that they're still getting. Uh, most elections, even when they run quite a bad campaign, a solid 40-45% of the vote on the second round anyway. Which is not nothing. Like, that's a lot of London. Is, is it just in London in general, there's just there's just going to be a, a, a minimum number for the Tories that just happens to be at that level? Or is, is there Yeah, there's always going to be a floor somewhere. Um, yeah. Cause, cause almost but for, it's not for, actually for, as low yeah. as you'd think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so, yes. The point I was going to make was that some of the rhetoric coming out of the Green Party at the moment is that their sort of medium-term aim is to become the main third party. Now that UKIP and the Brexit Party have gone, and the the Lib Dems have been unable to mount any kind of a serious comeback even after 10 years, uh, and now that there are so many people being disaffected from the Labour Party and from the Lib Dems looking for another option, that their pitch is, we're replacing the Liberal Democrats as the, as the default third party in English policy. And they're not there yet, but there are places now, local areas in England, actually 
not that few of them because it's not just Brighton anymore there's a few more of these places there's Bristol and more broadly other areas in the west of England and there's London where they are where, where it's looking kind of plausible that they could become at least locally the default third well, I mean, party in Bristol, or the even party. In, Bri- in Bristol the, the second party yeah, yeah. or oh, in fact the yeah. first, first party in the, in the council elections yeah quite yeah. but if there, are, if there are a few places like Bristol and Brighton where you're the first party and a few more larger places where you're the main third party then that is that is the short term step towards the medium term goal of becoming the main third party across the whole of England so yeah I, th- I think it's a plausible goal for them and if that were to happen it would be good I think I think the Greens being the main third party yeah, rather I mean, than the Lib Dems I mean, what do the Lib Dems do as a third party I mean in theory they should be yeah. the party <laughs> pushing the other two parties to sort of focus more on civil liberties and things like that but they don't and they when they were yeah. in coalition with the Tories they facilitated one of the biggest crackdowns on civil liberties um, in a long time the only actually meaningful thing that they've done in the last 15 years is that they provided the Tories with a majority when they couldn't win one on their own right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if, if that that's the legacy of the existence of that whole party. Unless you count like the People's Vote campaign. Or... Which didn't go anywhere mm. anyway. Yeah. And they traded, a, they traded yeah. a vote on an extremely weak um, adjustment to the voting system, it, which they knew they were probably going to lose because people realised yeah. it was hardly any better. And they traded that for... What did they trade that for? Was that tuition fees they swapped that one for? Or was that benefit mm. cuts? I can't remember. It was one of the two. Either way. Whereas obviously having the Greens as the third party should in theory push the main two parties to focus more on environmental issues and on sort of um, localism as well. I would say the Greens are sort of a, a, a party of localism in many ways, um, which would be a good thing. And from the perspective of someone on the left of the Labour Party, it kiboshes the main well you've got nowhere else to go Peter Mandelson line exactly it's like aha we do have somewhere else to go (laughs) it's part of this long term trend of ever since Peter Mandelson said that we don't have to worry about them they've got nowhere else to go of people finding somewhere else to go (laughs) whether it was Brexit or whether it's Scottish independence or now the red wall crumbling and going towards uh, all that and now the Green Party rising people will find somewhere to go I mean he's back though now isn't he Mandelson yeah yeah, he's he's back advising Keir Starmer I mean, it's, yeah. it's absurd. Who advised them of that? It's absurd. Yeah. Well, they needed yeah. to modernise, didn't they? <laughs> well, modernise by bringing someone who's hasn't been relevant for thirty years. <laughs> and on the assembly, the London Assembly, quickly. You know, I think there is quite a different, a bit of a different picture, at least, where the Conservatives, the Conservatives caught up to Labour a bit, as as they did in sort of the mayoral race, um, and ended up taking a seat off them. But the Greens and the Liberal Democrats are a bit more evenly split. Um, although the Greens mm-hmm. are still in third place. Uh, and now with now with three seats. So, I don't know, maybe it's not that different after all. I mean, it's, it's slightly different, but know. the same sort anyway, of outline. I'm glad to say that in the mayoral... Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to say that in the mayoral race, Count Binface uh, beat the uh, UKIP candidate, Peter Gammons, uh, beat the Heritage candidate beat the um, Women's Equality Party candidate, which is great because they're a bunch of turfs these days. Um, unfortunately, uh, Lawrence Fox managed to get great. 2%, which is yep. a shame. Ooh, nearly 2%. Because um, I would really I would really have liked for him to get, like, nothing. Yeah. Just to see the look on his smug face. I mean, for, for a, like, a Z-list actor whose main achievement is having been divorced by Billy Piper, I just, I don't understand why anyone takes him seriously. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense, does it? Especially considering he never ever says anything interesting. Well, like, all all he says is council culture is bad. Council culture is bad. I don't like council culture. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. And it's like okay, 
sorry, but like tough. <laughs> there are some things Free speech that are exists, kind of annoying so. about Twitter. The, the political well, at, party. At least current bin face is more relevant. Hell yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're standing alongside Count Binface isn't actually trying to be a real party, right? Yeah. He's trying to take the piss out of the other parties. Whereas Lawrence yeah. Fox is saying, no, I'm at least in principle the the equivalent, the peer, the the equal of parties like the Green Party and the Conservative Party and Labour and whatever. It's like, if you're going to be a one-party candidate, the Greens one, climate change, and your one, sometimes people are annoying on Twitter, are not at the same level of seriousness. Come on. Should we have a look at the Celtic Fringe? <laughs> I'm enjoying using old. I'm gone beyond the, 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 the English yeah, gone beyond the provinces. Now we're on the Celtic Fringe. Uh, so they're really the the twilight edges of of the world. But we have to make Jamie feel welcome, don't we? Um, so, <laughs> unfortunately, Northern Ireland didn't have an election this year. No, so I know. Well, we'll get onto it. We'll get onto the leadership nonsense. But oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about um, Scotland and Wales. So should we? Where should we start with? Should we start with Scotland? Yeah, let's start with Scotland. I'm a bit, I'm a bit Scottish myself, so we'll start there. Also, mm. bigger. Um, <laughs> going sorry, Wales. You should I'm be more Scottish you want than, than most American Irish people are Irish. <laughs> My nan's from Glasgow, so. But I'm not going to claim to be Scottish myself. <laughs> uh, we, I grew up eating haggis on Burns Night. I think that counts. Yeah, right. me too. So, <laughs> I love haggis. I haven't had anything. Yeah, years, yeah I actually like it as well. That's the. No, I, I really like it, but unfortunately, my girlfriend is vegetarian. Uh, um, you can't get vegetarian haggis. Meat. Yeah, what's the point? I've never tried it, so I don't. I don't. I have, I'm not in a position to judge whether there's a point. Yeah, I mean, even if it tastes nice, I'm just gonna be eating it, going, "This feels wrong." This feels, haggis, feels yeah. like I'm stamping on Rabbi Burns's grave. You know, <laughs> just, you kind of need like a Beyond Haggis or something like that yeah, to go with post it. Post Haggis. It's like it's like yeah. post punk, but for Haggis. Yeah, impossible haggis. Prog haggis. Prog haggis. <laughs> that totally yeah. could be a ban. Um, yeah, so the main question about the Scottish election was whether the SNP would get a majority, and they didn't. But they are only one mm. seat off. So um, before they had, um, they, they were leading a minority government in Scotland with support from the Scottish Greens, and that's stayed the same. Um, but both the SNP and the Greens have gained seats. Uh, one for the SNP and two for the Greens. So the pro-independence majority as a whole is larger. Um, so some people are saying, oh, the SNP didn't get a majority, therefore they don't have a mandate for a new referendum. And mm. obviously pro-independence people are saying, well, the pro-independence parties taken collectively increased their majority, so that says there is a mandate for another referendum. Um, of course, as I think... Um, I think uh, Gordon Brown said the other day, um, and I think he's probably right, that thinking of Scotland as a country that's 50-50 split around, um, the independence question is is only correct from a certain point of view. What it really is, is 30% of people want independence, 30% of people probably want a closer relationship with the UK, and the 40% in the middle probably want to keep things roughly as they are with a bit more devolution. Um, and that, I think, is the the critical point because a lot of people who vote for the SNP and for the Scottish Greens don't necessarily want independence, even if they would, in theory, back a referendum, which is a different question. I think um, hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's not. So I could see but, why that would be true of the Greens, but 
I don't see why someone would be voting SNP rather than Labour. Well, I think there's a couple if they if they want it, if they support yeah. the union. I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is that to a significant extent, Nicola Sturgeon has remade the SNP's image to um, oh, very good point. such that it now has the sort of it, 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 she's remade it as a kind of social democratic party um, to rival Labour. So if you're sort mm. of broadly on the centre left, I think. Especially if you're like like you don't particularly yes. mind yeah. about the independence yeah. question. I think there are people that would that would be fine with an independent Scotland, but are also it's not their main issue. They don't really particularly care about it that much. So that, yeah, so there's that. There's also the point I think that um, over the last year, obviously one of the biggest issues has been COVID, um, and there was a I think there was a a question that someone asked Nicola Sturgeon just before the election, uh, saying you know I am a I'm someone who thinks you've done a really good job as First Minister. I think you've done a really good job of responding to the COVID pandemic. I don't want an independent Scotland. What, sh- you know, sh- what should I do kind of thing? And she said, we should vote for the SNP. Um, so even Sturgeon herself isn't making the independence question the sort of sole plank of the SNP's appeal, as it was under Salmond, I think, more. Um, mm-hmm. I think that does the make cleavage. a difference. Mm. And it was, it was part of their big um, explosion onto the Westminster scene in 2015. They did... Partly it was off the back of the the independence referendum in 2014, I think. But partly it was they were specifically pitching themselves as the main anti-austerity party, right? This that it was Labour and the Tories. They both support austerity. We oppose austerity. And SNP politicians would then lead that into, and if we were independent, we wouldn't have to do it at all. But not everyone would follow that second step. But people might agree with the first step and therefore vote SNP. Hmm. I also think that the um the the whole. If the SNP get a majority, that's a mandate for a new referendum. Is a bit. It was kind of bad expectation management, in a way, I think, because it's a proportional system. It's very hard for one party to win an overall majority, yeah. and there's already a pro-independence majority, and two parties. You could very easily make that argument that it's just as much of a mandate. But deciding to bet the house on only if we get a majority are we going to be able to do this? It sort of weakens your negotiating hand in the in the current scenario, which was always the most likely scenario anyway. I think you've you've also got that in the previous independence referendum that happened and didn't translate into the result. So yeah, you know if you if you're arguing against it, you know from the British government side, you you know well why should we believe that logic again? You know mm-hmm. it's yeah it doesn't quite work. Yeah, I think also the question is, does Nicola Sturgeon yeah. really want another yeah, independence the referendum? Situation's pretty good for the. I'm SNP. not sure she yeah. does. I think that having having had the one in 2014 and lost it. I think she's more interested in long-term strengthening Scotland within the Union. Which is probably pretty sensible. Like, keep the current situation, which is pretty good for the SNP, maybe try and use the leverage of the threat of another independence referendum to get more devolved power, and yeah. then in the long term, yeah. hope that the, you can then make the argument and strengthen your case to the point where you actually get a pretty big majority in the Scottish public for independence, to the point where it's, it's pretty clear that you are going to win, and then pick your moment. That is probably a better long-term strategy. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, really, that um, a lot of the people in the SNP who want a referendum now, 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 um, they're more associated with Salmond. And a lot, of the, a lot of the most vocal people of that kind of wing of the party left and joined Alba, mm. which, it should be noted, didn't get any seats <laughs> and hardly any other vote. <laughs> so that went well for Alex. But... Um, so I think I think our position within the party is much strengthened because of because of the combination of Alba 
forming and then not doing very well, and the SNP slightly increasing its vote share, I think that solidifies her position within the party for a more gradualist, more um, sort of moderate and uh, long-term approach to to independence. I think, I'm so sure she would ultimately, if she could, you know, press a button, she would prefer Scotland to be independent. I just don't think that she's necessarily going to be the one to do it because I think she cares more about the long term. Mm. I think she's kind of right. Like she's got there's a strong argument behind making that case. Yeah, she can't make it explicitly because otherwise it defeats the object. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But if if your goal was, I want to maximise the chances of Scotland becoming independent, that is probably the most strategic path to be taking. It's it's weirdly symbiotic with the Tories though, because they also like this situation. Because how would you solve a problem like Scottish independence if you're a English Tory party? It's it's one of those things in politics that this is a temporary solution. You can sort of keep this kind of standoff whereby the SNP kind of bluffing anyway about them wanting to have a referendum now and that situation is a short term solution to stopping Scotland becoming independent and then in politics long term solutions are just short term solutions that you can keep going right <laughs> and you can hope that in the next 30-40 years Scottish independence just becomes less salient as an issue that would be like that. That that's what Scotland staying in the UK long term that's what it looks like mm. right? yeah I agree yeah. when you pause Scots on whether they want a referendum now or whether they want to wait People, even yeah, people right. who are pro-independence, say they want to wait. You know, they want to push it, f- and and you know, they want to push it five years down the line. And of course, in five years' time, probably they're going to want to push it down the line five years again because it's a big change. And you know, even if you're pro it, you know it's going to cause a lot of disruption. You know, it's probably going to knock the economy back at, at least to some degree mm. in the short to medium yeah. term, in the same way Brexit has. So even if you're in favour of it, you still don't really want to deal with it right now. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that that is the only plausible unionist strategy is to keep keep that can getting kicked down the yeah. road which is not really one that labor can adopt labor has to try to retake scotland now which is really difficult under the current circumstances because it cannot win a majority at westminster without scottish seats yeah yeah and i think it is possible that it could win back some seats in scotland but i don't think it's possible for them to unseat the smp as the main pass i mean the big problem mm. for them i think is that that glasgow yeah which is um, one of the only places where they've, where they've, um, you know, one of the places in Scotland where you would think the Labour Party could do quite well. It's a large post-industrial city, quite multicultural for Scotland. Um, you know, is really pro-independence. Um, so that there's that problem. I think <laughs> of, this point. of it, winning back Scotland means winning Glasgow back to the idea of unionism. I think. I think if you can do that, then a lot of the other pieces on the board might follow, because Glasgow has so many seats in it relative to the rest of Scotland, because it's, like, big. You know, it's bigger than Edinburgh, but, yeah. Um, but, so, yeah, I, I think that that is what they have to do. They have to convince Glaswegians to stay. And that's quite a tough sell. <laughs> Glaswegians are a bit... Um, yeah, I mean, Glaswegians don't even really like being bossed around by Edinburgh, let alone London, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, it is true, I think, I'm just trying to make sure that I've got the numbers right, but that's... East Glasgow, the which is the traditionally more working class part of Glasgow, is the place, it does still have a certain amount of residual Labour strength to it. It's the place, yeah, it's one of the places where in 2017 Labour won a few seats back in Scotland. They won a couple in East Glasgow as well. And the SNP tend to have relatively smaller, they're still pretty big, but relatively smaller majorities in East Glasgow compared to the rest of the SNP strongholds. Um, so I don't think it's completely impossible either. It's, it's unlikely. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't think it's impossible. Yeah. 
but that has to be their focus, I think. Mm. Um, and and having Anasawa as leader, who is from Glasgow, you know, I don't agree with Anasawa's politics, but having a leader, you know, from Glasgow, based in Glasgow, is probably a good thing, I think. Certainly, if they had a leader based in Edinburgh, I think they would be hiding to nothing. <laughs> that could do well. Um, much as I love Edinburgh, it's a beautiful city, but you know, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I'm also kind of, I'm definitely getting from this as well that if you were to kind of pick a year to start chipping away at the SNP, surely this year would have been a reasonable opportunity given, you know, basically how Nicola Sturgeon's had, Sturgeon's had you know, all the various, right. you know, tensions between her and Salmond, mm. you know, you know the sort of ministerial conduct investigation they were doing in Parliament. And, you know, she sort of somewhat recovered from it. But you'd imagine if you were to pick a year, considering how, you know, her and the SNP are quite synonymous together. That if you're going to try and mount some sort of a comeback of your labour, to this year would be the kind of mm. year to start it. But that hasn't really materialised. No, although I think something that Sturgeon does massively benefit mm. from. And if you look, we'll talk about Wales in a minute. But if you take England, Scotland, and Wales and look across the piece, the party that's in government has done quite well in each case, and that's been a consistent trend. Yeah, not just in Britain, around the world, worldwide well. during yeah, this America, crisis. Yeah. Um, with the exception, notably, of Japan and America, because, you know, I don't know if you've met Donald Trump, but yeah. Um, and the Japanese government had a bunch of scandals that sort of started before COVID, but continued through it. But with those exceptions, most... most Well, there is the case that the main opposition party in America didn't decide to go, oh, we agree with your strategy entirely. Oh, well done, Trump. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> quite. <laughs> they decided, oh, we can pin this on him, and then yeah. ran on it. Uncommon governments have done well out of COVID so long as their strategy has been at least reasonable if you squint. And in particular in this country, because the vaccine rollout has been the best in the world, and the, the, the governments that are responsible for administering that rollout have all received the boost. Um, and I, I think that that is maybe a counteraction to the the, the uh, other trends. I think it's it's helped, but there's um, there's the... Even before the vaccine rollout, the, the predominant opinion, I think, among most people of the government's performance was, well, they've done very badly, but they were doing their best. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And that was not inevitable. That's a failure of Labour's political strategy. And I think if you were on the basis of the government's done really, really badly, and then there was a successful vac vaccine rollout, I don't know, it probably still would have helped, but I don't think it would have been the, it would have made the, the Tories into a super popular party again. Yeah. All on its own. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, if you look at Wales, right, mm -hmm. which we will turn to in a second, but if you look at Wales, mm -hmm. the Labour vote in Wales went up by 5%, right? Um, the Tory vote yep. did as well, actually, um, which I think is because a lot of Welsh people get English news. There isn't a separate Welsh edition of newspapers, um, as there is for Scotland, so I think the Tories also benefited from a vaccine bounce there, but the SNP, on the other hand, mm. only went up, their vote only went up by 1%. So it does make you wonder whether they, they're the vaccine rollout aside they might not have done as well as they did yeah it's possibly I true don't know. um uh, oh, i just totally yeah. forgot what point i was gonna make i was gonna make one it's gone now <laughs> <laughs> it was gonna be good it was gonna be good it was something good. about wales <laughs> it'll come back to me let's move on yeah what should we talk about <laughs> okay yeah. talk about wales then yeah i mean wales wales i love wales wales is good I'm pro no, we are pro Wales on this podcast. Oh, I remembered. Um, um, so, the Tories yeah. and Labour both going up in Wales at the same time. What was the third party that collapsed that allowed that to happen? Then? Well, hmm. Plaid Cymru 
only went down by 0.2%. Mm. Liberal Democrats went down by nearly three, so they they didn't do great. Um, I don't know what, what else. Let me let me peruse the results. Uh, UKIP, I think. Uh, yeah, U- UKIP lost in the previous in the previous Senate. Um, UKIP had seven seats. Now they have zero. So I think that that's probably where a lot maybe of the maybe of this is where I was going with this. From, but... Is that that's by contrast yeah. with what within England what you were saying before is that. Um, if we remember when we were talking about Hartlepool, that one of the reasons why Labour did relatively well in 2017 was that when UKIP collapsed, people went, broadly speaking, back to their previous party, whether it was Labour or the Tories. Whereas when the Brexit party collapsed, yeah. 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 they almost all went to the Tories. Um, and in Wales, they followed the 2017 pattern and not the 2021 pattern relative to England. So UKIP has collapsed, and people that moved from Labour to UKIP have generally speaking gone back to Labour rather than it being a pipeline to the Tories. Now, part of that is what we were talking about with Liverpool before as well, which is the the just the deep-seated cultural resistance to the idea of voting Tory. I think that's pretty strong in South Wales still. Yes, mm. but then that used to be true across the north of England as well in many places, and it's not anymore. So why is Wales... I mean, we know why Liverpool's kept onto it. They don't get the sun. Um, that is literally it, right? That's the answer. Why, why is Liverpool so much more strongly Labour than the rest of the north? Because they don't get the bloody sun. Yeah. Um, but, one. Yeah. Um, mm. but why South Wales? Because as far as I know, they do get the sun. Um, yeah. I mean, Labour kind I, of I, I, made the, the, the Labour tradition at South Wales is obviously very old and very strong. You know, lots of the early great leaders of Labour yeah. came out of the... I mean, even before the Labour Party, mm. you had Lloyd George, who, who is obviously sort of the last great sort of working class-ish um, sort of liberal politician um, before the Liberals collapsed into Labour. But, um, yeah, I don't know. So I'm glad. There's a big because if if Wales went Tory, we would really be screwed. Yeah. There's a big element um, which we haven't mentioned yeah. yet, which is that uh, the Welsh Labour Party's leadership has taken quite a different political direction to the English Labour Party, in that it has quite a left wing leader, someone who predated Corbyn but um, was an enthusiastic Corbyn supporter, <laughs> and has since said yeah. that Labour needs to That's continue true. with. They're good friends. Aren't they? they are. They are quite good friends. I think. Yeah. He's quite personally popular as well, Mark Drayford, I think. I think so too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, he's yeah. been seen like Nicola Sturgeon as being uh, very no. sort of statesmanlike um, in a way that I think Boris Johnson certainly hasn't, but I don't think mm. even even Starmer or even Cor- you know, Corbyn weren't, they weren't really seen as statesmen uh, or Ed Miliband or any of the Labour leaders for a while. Whereas I think in Wales, yeah, Mark Drayford is seen as that, especially, especially I think, since COVID. But I think even before that, he was... I mean, he didn't come in long before that, did he? Because um, there was the whole thing about Carlin Jones and that whole scandal propelled yeah, him yeah. power. But... There was, um, there's the fact that we haven't really mentioned yet, that this is this wasn't really that expected. That people were predicting it to be quite bad in Wales for Labour. People were talking about the Conservatives being the largest party and and that probably probably La- uh, Labour would still end up forming yeah. the executive in coalition with Plaid, but that the Tory, there's a yeah. possibility the Tories yeah. still end up being the largest party. And therefore, if coalition talks between Plaid and Labour broke down, you could end up with a sorry first minister. And that's not happened at all. Labour is, Labour is, there's been a swing to Labour. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this I'll re-mention something that I mentioned earlier, which is that this is a distinction between Wales and England. Even though Wales gets a lot of English news, it's still voting in a pattern that doesn't match the swing that happened in England. Well, you've also got of the minor parties, um, uh, you've got abolish the Welsh Assembly, which did quite well. Um, 
I mean, not like super well, but like yeah, they didn't get any seats, but they got uh, yeah, three point three point seven yeah. in the in the in the region vote, um, which which suggests that you know there is at least you know some feeling in in the country that they they want less less independence, not more. And as we said before, you know the independence in Wales is only about a one third of the population sort of are in favour of it. Quite a lot of the population would quite like to become more closely linked with England, um, and I think that might have something to do with the economic ties in a lot of cases. You know, Wales is more economically integrated with England than Scotland is, I think. Um, also, maybe Plaid's media game just isn't as good, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that much about the Plaid leader, Adam Price. Um, I, 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 I was fairly, um, mm-hmm. fa- you know, fairly <laughs> approving of, of Leanne Wood, the previous leader. Yeah, me I don't too. really know much about Adam Price. Yeah, I don't know so much about him either. But you, Jamie? No, not not you know, too Adam, much about him, no. Adam Price? No, I don't know. Well, Plaid don't do bad. In comparison to, comparing to the SNP, is a bit the SNP is so overwhelmingly dominant at the moment because of what happened between 2014 and 2015 which was a massive very very quick shift of where the a huge section of labor's sort of election infrastructure and its um, voter base shifted wholesale over to the SNP pretty much overnight over the independence question um yeah but they've managed to hold on to it they have managed to hold on to it very well um but pre that shift um Plaid Cymru are pretty comparable to that. Yeah, yeah, in in some ways. Um, I mean, in, in some ways they do mm, better than that. Yeah. Well, it's just a smaller country than Scotland, so it's easier for a third party to become significant. And applied to Plaid gained a seat, um, despite losing a very small uh, number of votes, but a percentage of votes rather. But they did gain a seat. Yeah. Um, I don't know. If, mm. if, if the Communist Party uh, got some votes. If anyone's interested in the in the CPGB still, uh, CPB, sorry, my apologies. <laughs> Communist Party of Britain, uh, 0.26% of the regional vote, and the TUSC, right. uh, 0.15%, and the Workers' Party of Britain, uh, that's Galloway's lot, that's 0.04%. So, you know. And then the Socialist Party of Great Britain um, got, um, got 0.01%. The constituency vote. This just now, hang on. The socialist, the socialist party, Great Britain. How the far left is doing? That's how they're that, doing. That's the. That's not the former militant. No, that's the older one. So the socialist party of Great Britain is, um, like Orthodox Marxist. So it's anti, um, anti-reformist, or also anti-anti-Leninist. The sort of yeah, Metric kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the TUSC are obviously Trotskyists. Um, the CPB are Marxist-Leninists, and the Workers' Party of Britain are George Galloway. So oh, I don't know what his ideas, Galloway, yeah. ideology is, except <laughs> just George Galloway. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a hat, and he's quite transphobic. That's that's one Big Brother ones. That's about it. Yeah, yeah he I was. think it's the official. Big brother, uh, yeah. Oh, and the party yeah, no I, more I, lockdowns. I did notice the no more lockdowns party. I was just like, <laughs> it's a very, you know, temporary specific party. <laughs> well, you know, and they got. Wonder how they'll do next time, right? Yeah, there was an anti-lockdown <laughs> candidate in um, the London mayoral election yeah. as well, which was Piers Corbyn, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's <laughs> slightly oddball uh, brother. Right, who, yes. he, he got twenty thousand votes. He got zero point eight percent. So yeah. anti-lockdown politics. How many of those people thought it was Jeremy Corbyn? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably most of them. <laughs> 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 oh dear, bless him. Piers, Piers Corbyn's really weird because he's like he's like super conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer type. But like quite left wing in other ways, he's like the last of the left wing conspiracy theorists. You've got to love him. 
Um, mm-hmm. Even if I hope, you know, he there's a special place anything. in my heart for the the kind of that kind of left wing conspiracy theorist, slightly sort of it's like old fashioned hippie adjacent thing. <laughs> I think a lot of lefties have a have a sort of affection yeah. for this, um, even though we don't we don't want it to win. A lot of the old conspiracy theory, you know, when conspiracy theory theorizing became like a movement with like the mag- magazines and stuff that was back in the 50s mm. and 60s uh 60s in particular obviously with counterculture um mostly lef- lefties um back then but then of course the counterculture just split. needs a bit more of a systemic um, analysis i, I still it, um, you know what I, I will admit this on on the podcast i still think jfk plausible too, to be honest with you <laughs> um, I, I i will still say that yeah i you know jfk martin luther king malcolm x robert kennedy all in the space of a few years. Hmm. I mean, I'd be really surprised if there wasn't hmm. something. something okay. <laughs> I don't know what it is. There were a lot of political assassinations in America in the sixties and seventies, but it's won by just virtue by people not having any idea, hmm. and there's no clear answer. That they're the kind of the only choice then is something's happened. Yeah. Like something shady. Specific question that's, would be: that's the Did thing with it. HW know who know who did it? Or did HW actually shoot him? Maybe. He was on the grassy knoll. Yeah. Well, of course, Red Dwarf solved the I problem. I really want actually JFK yeah, yeah. himself. Um, in Probably order to maintain the timeline. needs to become so, uh, just a full-blown yeah. conspiracy theory podcast now. So we need to take skepticism away from yeah, yeah. the right. We can have Alex Jones on there. the show. We've not been doing too much <laughs> yeah, revolution exactly. lately. It's had a lot of electoral politics. We should, we should cover some more yeah. radical stuff at some point. But let's get this out of the yeah, way. So, yeah, um, okay, yeah, what should we yeah. talk about next? Um, should we do? We've been doing a bit of a tour, so should we talk about the Northern Ireland situation and the DUP before we talk about the Labour nonsense, just to keep the tour of the country going? So, um, there's been a leadership election of sorts in the Democratic Unionist Party. Take it away, Jamie. Yeah, of sorts is a way to put it. So. Um... Yeah, obviously, I think it was two, three weeks ago, um, the, the DUP, in a very rare move for the DUV, had an internal revolt and booted out Arlene Foster as their leader, as well as um, Nigel Dodds as deputy leader. And, you know, considering this is a party who their general front image of, you know, towards anyone that isn't the DUP is one of unity, not just in, in, in uh, the union, but mm-hmm. is a, you know, in the front of the party, that actually this is a quite amazing and strange move and obviously they've had a leadership election it's their first ever and obviously mr edwin poots has come out on top and i mean i don't know how much the two of you have sort of been looking into it but he's strangely he's the kind of the anti-dup establishment sort of candidate in a way that you know he wouldn't be like the kind of the sort of leadership's top pick in a way you had him versus jeffrey donaldson it was a tight vote of was it uh, 19 to 17 uh, was the vote split? Um, so you had that reasonably close vote for a party that generally, you know, they don't have a leadership election and generally whenever they do things, they don't really have that kind of a divided vote or opinion on, on it. So yeah, it's very, very unusual and very, very interesting. So. Yeah. So Arlene Foster was kind of, um, was taken out by the sort of, two petitions that went around, one from the uh, members of the Assembly and one from the DUP MPs in Westminster, and they both sort of joined forces to sort of get rid of her. Um, obviously, she was seen as something of a moderate yeah. and big scarecrows around that in terms of the DUP. Um, yeah, you know, very much. <laughs> so a relative, a relative yeah. moderate. 
Um, and Edwin Boots is seen as being closer to the hardliners. Um, so, I don't know, what, what I've been reading about it, you know, the things I've read have basically been saying that the DUP is bleeding votes to it. On, on, on the one hand, to the Alliance, which is a, a cross-community um, party that doesn't take a position on um, whether to be part of Ireland or the UK. Um, and on its other flank to the traditional unionist voice, which is the sort of extremely hardline conservative unionist party. Um, so, yeah, that suggests to me that the DUP MPs and, and members of the Assembly at least think that they're losing more to the traditional unionist voice. I don't know what you think about that. But. Yeah, well, it's one that... So, yeah, because you've got the, the ones who are more socially conservative, you know, potentially going to the traditional unionist voice. But the thing is that in terms of you know election results i mean the tuv have only ever had one seat in the assembly and you know even if they put up a reasonable attempt and you know another seat so you just have their leader jim allister they're not currently any kind of major force you know it's not like it's not like they picked up extra seats in um the most recent assembly election which was uh 2017 i believe and that that was one where the dup were very unpopular in it and that was the outcome of that election. You had, you know, more nationalist MLAs than any other grouping, which, you know, first of its time in Northern Irish history. So, yeah, it's strange. But then the one thing I was looking into was you have the election of Edwin Poots as leader. So you'd think, okay, that's going to the more conserv socially conservative, you know, religious fundamentalist side of the party. But then you also have the deputy leader, uh, it was uh, Paula Bradley elected, and she's probably one of the most liberal, at least for the DUP, members. And mm. she won out over... So maybe they're trying to play both sides? Yeah, so she won out over Gregory Campbell, who was probably one of the more hardliners in the party. So, you know, he's been mm. known for just outbursts, you know, against the Irish language and all sorts. So you've you've got that strange... It's not just an ideological direction for the DUP at the moment, um, is yeah. what I'm kind yeah. of seeing reading between the lines. Because they're two very, very different candidates to come through. I was just looking at the polling for the next um, election, Still which election. obviously, I mean, it's theoretically meant to be right. in. Yes, um, it's theoretically meant to be in twenty twenty two, but of course, who yeah. knows with, with the way things are. But um, um, so the polling, the most recent polling, was done by Lucid Talk for the Belfast Telegraph, um, conducted in January. Of this year, and the DUP were on nineteen percent. Sinn Fein were on twenty four percent. The UUP were on twelve. The SDLP on thirteen. Alliance on eighteen. TUV on ten. Greens two. People before profit one. Conservatives nothing. So I mean, obviously that's that's one poll. There was a poll in October of last year which was very similar. Um, so if that polling is borne out. Then that means the DUP have lost. Uh, what did you say the DUP number was? Uh, I'll leave oh, it to be you. Great, yeah. um, it was nineteen uh, percent in the most recent poll. Oh wow! Yeah, and that's very interesting. Twenty-three mm. percent yeah. in the poll before that, which was back in October. Yeah. Mm. Was the text in it? Yeah. So I don't know if that polling is borne out. That would mean Sinn Fein would be the largest party. Alliance would double their vote. The traditional unionist voice would quadruple their vote. Um, so I mean that would be a big shift. I don't know. I don't know how likely you think that polling is to be correct. Um, I don't know if you if you look at the same polling company 
pulling back in 2018, found that the DP were doing very well. Um, so, but of course it's hard to say because there's so little polling there. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you've also got is, because Sinn Féin are one seat mm. away from being the joint largest party, so they almost just need to maintain where they are, and the, as long as the DUP essentially fall, that you know they'll have the first ministership. Um, and really, kind of what Edwin Poots needs to do, if, you know, from the DUP standpoint, is you know, well, how how does he stop all of that from going to you know their alliance with the TUV and whichever else? Because you know their whole mantra is you know we are the unionist party yet they with the northern Ireland protocol they were almost they weren't party to it but they were kind of it's seen that they were they allowed that to happen and you know got shafted by the Tories and all that and it's, it's particularly difficult for Edwin Poots is that he's agriculture minister but that also as his role his department oversees essentially yeah. the port controls for the northern Ireland Port protocol so he's outwardly against it but then is also facilitating that so you've got this strange mm. situation for him where if he's trying to go against it and you know, also ne neither candidate him or Jeffrey Donaldson said how they were going to solve the situation. Um, you know, neither of them had much of a plan put out. And obviously the difficulty is that as well, I mean, nothing, not much publicly was said about the election. You're just kind of judging bits from various sources because the gagging order was put on both candidates. But, you know, neither of them really put out as far as i could read much of a plan of what they would do on the northern Ireland protocol it was just they're both saying we're against it which when you're the dup well you're unionist you're going to be against it but unionist voters will say well you facilitated that to happen so yeah it's i don't know really know how they combat that it'll be interesting to see i noticed on on this most recent poll if that were to be borne out the dup wouldn't even have a majority of the unionist vote like the UUP and, T and TUV together would have would have more. Obviously, they're never going to work together. But but yeah, that I said that would be a big shift. Um, you were you were you were mentioning before the show. What was it you said? Um, or something I wanted to to remind you of. Mm. Um, no. Oh, mm. see, so remembers first. Mm. You were <laughs> talking about. It's it's great when you um, you come up with an amazing mm. point when the mic's off. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> what what will we think about that, David? What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> I don't really have much interesting analysis. I'm just I'm finding it very interesting listening. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Yeah, well, the UUP. Here's another point: is that the the UUP leader has also resigned. So I don't know if um, if you know anything about how the leadership for that is going to play out. It's yeah. Mm. So I mean, at the moment, I mean, during the last week, you had two candidates, um, sort of you know, in the running or potentially in the running. At the moment, you've currently only got, is it Douglas Beattie, if I get his name correct? Surname's Beattie. It's just how it's relevant to UPR at the moment. But, you know, the, essentially they're at one candidate who, you know, will is going to be leader at this point. Um, no one else has kind of gone up. And one of his allies, again, I forget his name, some terrible names, um, recently confirmed he wasn't standing. So at the moment, it's kind of a one-horse race. But it's kind of the UUP, uh, well, the the sort of proposed leader, he is looking to go of a, obviously, yes, you know, object to Northern Ireland Protocol and yeah. the rest of it, but also to do the kind of more socially liberal tack of unionism, whereas obviously the DUP, the impression is they might go more hardline with Poots. We'll see what happens because the deputy leader isn't that. But, you know, they could potentially try and get more votes via, I mean, just in terms mm. of general, you know, 
demographics and people's opinions in the country that you know more and more people are somewhat socially liberal you know over the years so if they can try and capitalize on those voters going away from the dup because for a long time dup were kind of you know okay as someone who's in the unionist nationalist voter and one of the middle ones that you know if you're a pro-union you know the only major option really for a long time has been the dup you know that because the other parties the tuv were almost too hardline and small and the uup kind of had lost its way for a long time so if you then have that coherent message come out as a party then potentially some of those voters who've disaffected with the dup who are more socially liberal could come back to them or divert to them it's it's yeah quite interesting for them but yeah unionism as a whole is it's in a reasonable state of crisis just purely because of the northern Ireland mm. protocol it you know um you know, on the basis that it creates that sort of de facto hardest border in the Irish Sea, that you know the whole point of why the DUP wanted Brexit was the opposite. They wanted you know same relationship with the rest of the UK and a less relationship with the Republic of Ireland. Now you have you know essentially easier economic integration with the Republic compared to the rest of the UK, and that completely goes against anything that a unionist would want. So yeah, so that that's just a pure existential crisis for them that. I don't really know how they get around and sell um, to their voters. Yeah, that was the other thing uh, that was, I remembered now, was that um, uh, Edwin Poots has said that he is not going to become first minister, but that he will remain agriculture and environment minister. So I suppose the first thing is, do you think he'll stick to that? And secondly, if he does, who do you think is likely to end up first minister? So I'm not sure who's likely, um, to be really honest. It's um, I don't know of enough knowledge of the internal workings of the DUP, but I mean, there's kind of because he's somewhat, he can be somewhat polarizing that what well, you saw how the vote bore out, it was 19 to 17, so it wasn't by any chance a landslide. And I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson's mm-hmm. camp, whenever they were, you know, looking at the numbers, they were kind of going, well, if we're going to win, we need to have, you know, 20 plus votes to at least make it somewhat convincing and we can, you know, bring everyone with us. So. I think the point of Edwin Poot saying he won't be leader himself, A, might help with some of the moderates in his party, I say moderate, for DUP, mm-hmm. um, to bring them along with him. Mm. But also, you then potentially have one person who would vote for him in the leadership election that he could nominate first minister. So it might be somewhat cynical, but then it's being first minister in Northern Ireland isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do right now. And it's probably easier for him to be leader of the DUP. He gets some of that you know, cohesion around him by okay, I've I've got he also mainly led the rebellion against Arlene Foster, so he then doesn't himself replace her as first minister. He is leader, so he's got a reasonable amount of control and he can try and placate people with his choice. And obviously he seems to have done that somewhat with the deputy leader election and that there were again, you know, there was nothing said publicly but from the candidates or anyone in the DUP about the leadership election, which is the most democratic thing the party with the name democratic in it can do um you know but essentially the word is that you know the edwin poots team kind of teamed up a bit with the deputy leader candidate uh, who's more progressive and potentially you know edwin poots kind of won towards the end because some of her say voters in the party went to him potentially so there's a thought that like jeffrey donaldson was felt reasonably secure that he was going to win and then you had the vote come through and it was very close, but Poots won. So, you know, a theory is that by, you know, bringing her along um, instead, who's more liberal for the DUP, 
that you kind of yeah edwin puts all that we want i know it's it's a really interesting election but then you don't really get a clear picture of it because like the candidates weren't able to talk about their candidacy to the public so it's yeah which is a whole other point itself i mean of course if yeah. uh, the other guy had won, um, uh, was his name Johnson? jeffrey donaldson yeah uh, jeffrey donaldson that's it if he'd won then he couldn't no. have been first minister because he no he you would have right? the theory was that he would have appointed diane dodds who's um who's finance minister and nigel dodds's wife as a aside um as like an interim first minister is what the word would be and then next um assembly election next year would run and then become first minister that was a theory that people were, gonna, were talking about but hey he didn't become leader so that's not going to happen but um yeah yeah i mean yeah. i suppose mm. i suppose having yeah. the first yeah. minister not be the same person as the leader might depoliticize the role to some degree i don't know what you think about that because obviously with the northern island executive it has to have um it has to have different parties in it because of the way it's constructed it has to have sort of cross-community membership so it's currently made up of um the dup the uup Sinn fein the sdlp and alliance i think is that right uh yeah that's correct yeah so yeah alliance yeah, yeah are included yeah so maybe justice. having a, a first yeah. minister who isn't a leader of one of those parties might help that be a bit more cohesive and you might not have another sort of collapse of power sharing i don't know what you think about that hmm. yeah i mean what you could have because edwin poots himself is more hardline um because whatever happens you know whoever becomes first minister will have to negotiate with Sinn Féin that potentially if you have someone who isn't Edwin Poots as first minister you could have you know an easier time negotiating with Sinn Féin you know not that that would ever be easy <laughs> um because and it's strange because obviously they had their um came out in sort of February I think 2020 their sort of you know power sharing deal with Sinn Féin of you know okay they spent three years not in government together and they said okay this is what we'll do you know i think for edmund putz does, does he go along with that still because you know he was in the northern Ireland executive as part of the government so did sign up to it but does he as leader keep going with that and then also do separately Sinn fein go dup in a bit of a tor- turmoil do we try and you know renegotiate it um it's yeah there's quite a few things that could play out mm. i mean is there any chance that I think the answer is probably no, but is there any chance that he picks someone from the UUP to be first minister, negotiates that so as to try and make it easier to negotiate with Sinn Féin? I mean, is that possible? Or I mean, it would be interesting. It would be interesting, but then, you know, if one of the main electoral threats is the UUP, of, if they pick up some of the more... Yeah, you know, liberal unionist vote. They, I mean, on that polling, they didn't seem to be. You know, they seem to be about the same. Uh, position. The, the liberals yeah. were going to the alliance. Yeah, and then sort of and leaving yeah, the official alliance exactly. Politics, yeah, and it's also one of because um, the proposed leader. Um, I think I think it's Doug Beattie. I mean, I'm terrible with names, so it doesn't help. But his surname's Beattie. I think you're right. He, yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah, I think it is Doug Beattie. He has said that he's ruled out any kind of electoral pact and that kind of thing with the dup so like for a bit of background in what happens sometimes in some of the northern ireland elections is you know the the say you've got one constituency that is majority unionist but because there's a split in the unionist vote essentially you've sometimes had electoral pacts where like okay you know the uup will be the only one we put a candidate in this constituency same dup and another one they will trade that off whereas you know the uup leadership candidate is basically said we're not doing that and so 
and it, with that kind of attitude to not wanting to work with the DUP in that way, I'm not sure if they would then work in that yeah, to the first okay. minister role. But it's interesting. But yeah, uh, fair yeah, yeah. But no, it's yeah. it's yeah, it's it's one where you know whatever happens in the next year that you know Edwin Poots is he's got a tough you know tough job to do you know because you know DUP are pretty much shouldering the blame at the moment for the Northern Ireland Protocol. So you know that if any party that has got anything you know at stake it's them you know Sinn Féin kind of have to sit tight you know you've got Alliance and UUP and TUV though who knows what's gonna happen with UUP um you know could be in a position where they you know pick up the votes it's it's very much DUP default you know if anything happens in that way and who knows in a year's time the opposite might happen but you know you've you've had a consistent trend and even in the last election before the Northern Ireland Protocol situation you know in um in the last general election, you had like Nigel Dodds lost his seat to Sinn Féin, and that was in North Belfast. Of you know that he's he's held that seat. The DUP's had that seat for many many years, and that you have that swing to Sinn Féin. You know, it's there's been a reasonable decline without the Northern Ireland Protocol, let alone this current situation. Yeah, and yeah, for, for yeah for a party who are generally quite resilient, it's yeah it's unusual, definitely because they're generally so resilient and united as a party, where it's not no. really seem very divided. Like you say, it's, it's, the first it's not a very DUP thing at all. Yeah, and I mean a key one as well, like because Edwin Poots isn't the kind of establishment ca- candidate. I mean a lot. No, he's not like a unity exactly. And one of well, interesting. One of the ones that sort of comments that's been coming out is that you know Edwin Poots is he isn't the establishment candidate, and neither is the deputy leader. So almost a lot mm. of what happened is a. You know, we don't like how the leadership is running. You know, DUP is very centralised, and you know, some word from a lot of sort of unionist community groups and all the rest of it is that the DUP, they they don't have much connection with them and they're not listening. So, you know, interestingly, yeah. that you know, Edwin Poots is talking about reform of the party, which, you know, seems quite incredible for a party that has been the way it's been since the seventies and it's always been like that. So you've got, you know, weirdly, he's more hardline, but a reformist candidate. For internally in the party and it's a complete shake up of you know mm. the DUP establishment mm. in a way so it's yeah it's very very interesting not just how it's going to happen in terms of you know any sort of future elections but just internally in the party it's very very different um yeah I mean I did want to I did have another thing on Northern Irish politics not related to the DUP but while you're here I wondered what you thought about the SDLP um becoming sort of partnered with and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because I don't speak Gaelic uh, Fianna Fáil. Um, yeah. What do you? Fianna Fáil. Yeah. Yeah. Fianna Fáil. What's that? Yeah. Fianna Fáil. I know, it's, okay. I've heard about okay. three or four different pronunciations myself, so I don't know. Yeah, it's one I don't know <laughs> yeah. too much Fair about enough. it because I mean, I remember. I mean, but I've not lived in Northern Ireland for a good few years. But even when I lived in there, there was talk about it, and I know I don't know if it. It's not really had much impact for them, as far as I can tell. Almost what did mm-hmm. better for them in recent elections was, you know, they, they came up very much as like, you know, with Brexit as a Remain party. And um, so the candidate mm. for like South Belfast is their only MP, now Claire Hanna, no relation. Um, <laughs> that's my, also my home constituency. So people would assume. I mean, are that. you sure? But, um, you know, she <laughs> have you came. Done the, have you done the yeah, research? Uh, who knows? Just a cousin, knows? maybe. I haven't, no, but she doesn't look like yeah. me. It's fine. <laughs> but she, because like almost how they played it and it benefited uh-huh. was them as almost like a, almost like a weird alliance style unity remain yeah. candidate so i think that's maybe something that's done better for them i don't know what the implication massively is going to be with the fianna Fáil sort of relationship 
because I don't maybe it's a bit of a re- reaction to um because Sinn Fein are an all Ireland party, so it could be a reaction to that. Of but course, no, I'm not yeah. sure. Actually, interesting. I'm I'm reading about it as well. That um, okay. interestingly, uh, Claire Hanna, their only MP, is against the arrangement. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, there we go. That is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a natural gelling. So they're both fairly sort of moderate type centrist parties. Generally speaking, Fianna Fáil are a bit, are, are quite a noticeably more right wing than the SDLP, or at least how they try to pitch them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Both of the major parties in the mm. Republic are reasonably kind of centre-ish, right-ish. Yeah, they're quite similar in their politics. They just have they they their sort of differences come from the Civil War, don't they? They were on opposite sides of the Civil War, but if neither yeah. of them are centre or right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're just kind of similar flavours. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is interesting. I'm wondering because for a while, you know, SDLP, you know, the most recent. Um, general election as an exception you know they kind of were in somewhat similar situation as the UU they were never having massive impact mm. you know you know ever since I mean when I was doing GC or A-level politics you know you know years ago the, the, you're having a similar conversation as you were you know a couple of years ago on well where, where do they kind of go they've gone through multiple leaders you know the current mm. one Colin Eastwood has been there a while but you know they never really had that much impact you know and you know they never had massive electoral yeah. success because Sinn Féin was, you know have been just very solid and where they are and if anything Sinn Féin you know went up at the last election so they seem to be consolidating that and Sinn Féin obviously they're still Sinn Féin mm. in their background and not a massive fan of them either mm-hmm. but like they've I think they've sort of played a yeah. sort of a better politics than a lot of the other parties particularly the DUP which unusual for the DUP because they've they've been known for pay- playing very very clever yeah. politics that's how they came the largest party whereas Sinn Féin have been reasonably good at DUP are antagonized and they try and you know look the better party in a way and they've also you know lent into the socially liberal element as well so and they're generally a more left-wing party so you know that contrasts well for them against the DUP who actually they're sort of um either sort of socially conservative Mm. views are generally against the majority of what people in Northern Ireland think and maybe a majority of unionists might agree with them but you know, Sinn Féin compared to the DUP seem more in line with public opinion on that. And they've kind of done well at marketing that in a way, despite kind of being Sinn Féin and all the baggage yeah. that comes with that. So, I mean, it will be interesting because, of course, there's, there's the fact that Sinn Féin have done well in the Republic yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 And there's that. Yeah. Should we talk about, um, should we talk about Labour? Let's talk about Labour. Let's get rid of the social democratic and part and just go to the straight Labour part. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because uh, they, they got rid of the SDP a while ago, so they don't need those letters anymore. Um, yeah, the Labour Party... Uh, every time we talk about the Labour Party and the Keir Starmer, I feel like I'm tearing out a little more of my hair each time. Um, so, okay, so we talked about the election results. Um, and obviously, as I said at the top of the programme, as it were, the first election results that came in were some of the less good ones for Labour. So, reacting to this, various figures in the Labour Party sort of started saying, oh, we need a new direction, whatever. And so what Keir Starmer decided to do was sack Angela Rayner, the deputy leader, as party chair. Now, he can't sack <laughs> it's her... It's just absurd on the face. Yeah, he can't sack her as deputy leader because that's an elected position. So what he thought he was going to gain by this is a mystery. But then, of course, his people all briefed to the Sunday papers that she'd been sacked. 
And then she said, well, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And so there was a, several hours of furious debate behind the scenes, after which it was decided... There's a particular story of, like, she was about to go on... She was about to go to the BBC or something, and go on TV and be all defend Keir Starmer's record and say, no, these elections weren't actually so bad for us. And then she heard about this and then was like, oh, well, I'll just go to the pub instead. (laughs) She found out, she found out, not through Keir Starmer, but because one of the journalists (laughs) who Keir Starmer's people had briefed to that she was being fact called her up for a comment. She's one of the the few politicians (laughs) still at the top of the Labour Party who's got some kind of an actual personality and charisma. So she was like, well, I'm not going on TV to defend your record then. I'm going to the pub. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then, after several hours of debate between her people and Keir Starmer's people, it was decided that instead of her being sacked, what was going to happen was instead she was going to get a bunch of new jobs, um, including Minister for the Future of Work, but more importantly, um, she's now the Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is... A slightly arcane title that hangs around, but basically means she's Michael Gove's opposite. And since Boris Johnson doesn't do anything because he's one of the laziest politicians in human history, that yeah. basically means she's kind of shadow prime yeah. minister because um, Michael Gove tends to do a lot it's of the kind work. Of, um, do whatever you like, job. It's a kind of you. Yeah, yeah. Like, a roving. Do brief. the big picture stuff. That's link the, the agenda up together. Yeah. Yeah. Minister. And then, of course, um, Kirsten's people tried to pretend that, that was the plan all along. She was never sacked in the first place, which riled yeah. up a lot of the journalists because, of course. Despite the fact that they they had previously yeah. been ac- actively briefing to the press that this was a demotion, yeah. Yeah. that it was because yeah. she was incompetent, yeah. <laughs> like negatively briefing yeah. about her, not just that That's it was great. a demotion, but they were being explicitly kind of and to try to cause damage to her reputation on the way out, kind of a an ignominious kind of a sacking, and then from that position they then had to backpedal and say no, 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 this is actually a promotion. <laughs> yeah. We never meant to sack her. Yeah. Uh, Steve. Stephen Bush of the New Statesman, um, there was a question sort of phoned into the New Statesman podcast the other day saying, oh, you know, did did journalists get it wrong by printing the original story about her being demoted when it was, you know, being briefed by bad actors, quote unquote. And he said, well, yeah, of course, that's no, that's absolutely true, because um, the thing is with journalists is journalism law means you're not allowed to save someone's number in your phone. <laughs> so when you get a phone call from um, someone, you've no idea if they're Keir Starmer's, uh, one of Keir Starmer's clerks or whether they're one of Angela Rayner's. And of course, they all sound exactly the same. They all have the same voice. So we have no way of knowing if someone claiming to be Kirst- one of Keir Starmer's people is actually one of Keir Starmer's people. Except, of course, of course they fucking have, right? <laughs> it, was yeah. it was a load of bollocks. Um, <sighs> these people, I mean, I know that the standard of journalism in this country, especially at the top levels, is pretty poor these days. But they are still professionals. Yeah, they, they, they're not that bad, I'm going to say. Um, yeah, so that happened. And then, uh, yeah, so apparently the reason why, one of the reasons why <laughs> she was originally um, demoted was not just, not because she was incompetent, because that's not really true. Yeah, and also it's kind of like, if anyone was incompetent, it, even if she was incompetent, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be her, it still wouldn't be her fault that these elections were bad, because she wasn't the one running the overall campaign strategy. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna have a scapegoat, it sort of didn't make sense for it to be her, even if she was, she was terrible. She was technically party chair, but the mm. thing is with the party chair role, does that mean as much as the leader wants it to mean? And under mm. Keir Starmer, it hasn't meant very much at all. Under Keir Starmer, it's never cede any power to anyone that <laughs> you can't directly control yourself. She was apparently briefing against two of Keir Starmer's advisors, um, Ben Nunn and Jenny Chapman, who he definitely didn't have. Herself. She wasn't really. Um, she was being a bit critical. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this has been the claim um, that, that that is why she was targeted mm. so quickly. You know. Anyway, so Angela Rainey gets moved to Duchy of Lancaster, Shadow Duchy of Lancaster. Then the existing Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster got Rachel Reeves 
got moved to Shadow Chancellor, and the present and the previous Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, got moved to um, Party Chair. So those three roles kind of got swapped around. Yeah, those are the two big stories. Is Reginald is replacing um, Annalise Dodds, and yeah. the attempted sacking of Angela Rayner, yeah. which then ended there up. There is also the slightly odd thing that. He also sacked the chief whip, Nick Brown, who's been there for ages and is generally considered by yeah, all yeah, parts really of weird. the party to be like a good bloke who knows what he's doing. That was really odd. Um, I can only assume that the previous deputy chief whip, who is now the current chief whip, has something on Starmer. Um, <laughs> there's no other way to explain it, really. <laughs> the only other way that I've heard to explain it that seems to make any sense is um, Pitt Mandelson. Yeah, because he's the last of the old school Brownites on here, Nick Brown. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he was a Brownite. And Pitt Mandelson thinks it's 2002. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so we've got. Rachel Reeves now as Shadow Chancellor, which <sighs> Rachel Reeves Rachel Reeves basically thinks that anyone on unemployment benefits isn't human. Um, she literally said a few years yeah. ago, I think a back significant the move to the right Miliband years that yeah. Labour shouldn't during the acute stages of um, austerity and the demonization of yeah. low income and, and she's uh, she said that the Labour Party shouldn't represent unemployed people, which is like. Do you understand? Labour will be tougher on benefits claimants than the Tories. A Tory yeah. party that most likely killed around yeah. 100,000 people. I mean, she is really the last Blairite. The last actual Blairite. You know, she was. And, and she is. She's been hanging around for a while. I think Keir Starmer has been listening mm. to her. Well, it was quite. For a while. She was kind of tipped yeah. to be his first yes. chancellor yeah. when he first became leader. And I was a bit surprised yeah. that it ended up being Annalise Dodds. I was yeah. pleasantly surprised, actually. Not that Annalise Dove is some raging yeah. lefty, but she's like she's. And a, now it's. She's pretty competent. She's not like massively charismatic. She's an academic type, but she's kind of on the soft left, and she worked with John McDonnell, and she, like I was, it was better than I was expecting from Keir Starmer when he first became leader. And she's been quite, for no apparent reason, been unceremoniously dumped. <laughs> if they wanted, if they wanted Rachel Reeves from the beginning, which they kind of did, why don't they just make her Shadow Chancellor from the beginning? Yeah. I think because Kirstarmer's yeah. first mm. Shadow yeah. Cabinet was constructed to try and appease mm. all parts of the party to get him through the first couple of months, and now he's sort of trying to construct the Cabinet he wants. I mean, I think the the fuck-up with Angela Rayner has meant he wasn't able to do that to the degree he wanted. I think it's pretty clear, for example, he brought Wes Streeting in, uh, who's another sort of um, right, right-wing sort of New Labour type. Um, he brought Wes Streeting in as a, as a Shadow Minister for Child Poverty, and I think it's pretty clear that he wanted to make him education but after Angela Rayner felt he didn't have the capacity. And again, I think uh, Rosina Alan Khan has been brought in as Shadow's um, Minister for Mental Health. And again, I think it's prob- probably the case that he wanted to shack, shack? to sack shack. John Ashworth um, as health, Shadow Health Secretary and make Alan Khan Shadow Health, but felt he couldn't after the Rayner debacle. Um, so I think he wanted a bigger reshuffle than he ended up getting. Um, which... Yeah, I guess it's good that he didn't get as big a one as he wanted. But yeah, so it's hard to know exactly what Kisama's motivations are with all of this. Um, so I really just try not to assign motive to it too much because it's very difficult to do that kind of thing. But there definitely are people in who are very influential in the current leadership of the Labour Party who see the point of Starmer as erasing any legacy from Corbynism, try to turn Labour Party back into what it was before Jeremy Corbyn. And it sort of doesn't matter if we win elections in the meantime. The most important thing is get rid of Corbyn, get rid of any legacy of Corbyn, turn the Labour Party back. It, it, fight the internal party battles. Who cares if we win the next election? That is 
a faction. Um, yeah. And it seems to me that, that one of the shifts that has happened over the last couple of... Acutely over the last couple of weeks, it's been building for a longer period of time, is the shift from, for the people who want to fight that internal party battle, it was the strategy initially to try to do it covertly for as long as possible. To pretend you are on board with Starmer's party unity thing, um, whilst doing everything you can to organise behind the scenes against the parties left internally, and try to get them not to fight back by saying, no, we want party unity. That ship has sailed now. <laughs> so we're on to the new phase of all-out war. And including against the soft left. Not just the Corbinite left, but anyone who's not a Blairite. So that includes Angela Rayner, includes Brownites, like the... Uh, like the former party chief whip. It includes Starmer. Um, yeah. That, 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 it kind they, of includes they, Starmer. They will come yeah. for so him. It's, it's hard to know to what extent Starmer's on board with this, but because um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and assign both if it's possible that he's in on it, it's possible he's not in on it. Either way, that is the function he's being, that some people are trying to make him serve in the history of the Labour Party, including a lot of people that are very senior I mean, it, around it, it, him. I think, I think a lot of it's been driven by his advisors, his, his spads, because I think I think he listens to them a lot more than, you know, members of the Shadow Cabinet have complained for a while that he listens to his spads a lot more than he listens to them, which often happens with politicians because they see them more. But uh, I think his his spads, particularly Chapman uh, and Nunn, who are the two main ones, are, I think they're on board with this sort of strategy, even if Starmer himself maybe has cop feet at times, I don't know. But I get the impression that they are pushing him that way. Yes, it is interesting the extent to which that that is a relatively small section of the Labour membership, but it's actually a relatively small faction of the, of the Parliamentary Labour Party as well. There's a relatively few of these actually really hard-right, um, hard-right relative to the Labour Party, um, sort of Blairite MPs. So it's, with these moves, um, and with the the attempt on uh, Angela Rayner, and Lisa Nandy as well, yeah. he, was, he, was, um, he was apparently going to try and demote Lisa mm. Nandy significantly, and that also failed. Yeah. And they're both from this kind of GMB faction. Um which is quite well connected and has a lot of networks in the Labour in the PLP itself. He's alienated a really large section of the PLP as well. And we know from the Labour leaks that happened a couple of years ago that um, that there are people in the kind of, for want of a better term, the deep state of the Labour Party, the the paid staffers and things, who consider large sections of the PLP, including people like Yvette Cooper and whatever, to be basically far left, right? People calling it Yvette Cooper a trot. Right. So there's it's, it's a genuinely unhinged faction, and I think it's somehow ended up being quite influential in Starmer's inner team. I mean, if the idea that Peter Manderson's uh, quite influential is anything to go by, then it really suggests that quite an eccentric function um, of the Labour's internal functioning, which is eccentric even by the standards of the PLP, is, uh, has wormed its way into quite a position of quite a lot of influence, which I think partly explains the just mental stuff that the leadership's been doing recently. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean... I admire your in-depth knowledge of the macro politics of the Labour Party, which I don't have, but it's it's an interesting one of like when I mean, you contrast it to Keir Starber's leadership bid and that he was you know, the whole tack was, Oh, I thought we had great policies, it was our message and you know, for the leader, that was what it was, but then effectively what they've kind of done is gutted the, the policy bit, which he said was the good bit, and kind of yeah, because they've just completely gone against that, which obviously is probably very much been said before, but it's really interesting that, you know, he was kind of going, well, ideologically, you know, okay, probably a bit more centrist, but, you know, not as, yeah, you know, not going to completely go away from it. And then that's kind of the opposite of what's happened. It's it's very interesting observation. Yeah, the, the pitch was kind of try to be more of a unifying figure in terms of the factional politics of the party and keep 
kind of 60% of Corbyn's policies and then try to present it in a kind of establishment-friendly way. And that's really, really not what he's done since becoming leader. Yeah, I mean, like... Okay. I think... In terms of his, in terms of the, the professed policy platform of the party, it hasn't moved too much. My worry is that this has been preparing the ground, right? Um, and that now that Rachel Reeves is in as chancellor, that will start to happen. No, but that that would not be the first step. Mm. Yeah, there's a particular Blairite strategy, but like it's a very spin thing to do, to um, to use a night like the the local elections night where you're going to get bad headlines anyway to just get a load of stuff that's going to give you bad headlines mm. done in one go. It's, it's a classic spin strategy. So if you if you always wanted to sack Angela Rayner, you wanted to do it on a night when you're already going to get bad headlines yeah. anyway. So I think possibly they've just used it to accelerate stuff that was already the plan for factional battles that they otherwise were intending to happen over the next few months. Mm. That's speculation, mm-hmm. though. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the um, there was some attempt to do something more fundamental, like, for example, change the leadership election rules come the next conference. Like get rid of one member, mm. one vote, or something like that. I think they'd struggle with that. That would have been. <laughs> it, they would struggle to get that yeah. last conference, yeah. And also, it'd be akin to a clause four moment, um, though it's probably, probably less dramatic. Um, but these people are just not as good at it as Blair was. Not as good at politics, I mean. Um, <laughs> Blair was really good at building a consensus among different trade unions and and um, and sort of bringing the membership with him on something like a clause four change. Uh, for, for the viewers, clause four being the change for being changing the Labour Party constitution to no longer commit the party to common ownership of production, which is a change that happened in the nineties under Blair. Uh, yeah, so changing the leadership rules would be like that. But I think basically these people have no idea how you try to change something fundamental about the Labour Party and bring the membership along with you. Yeah, I think I mean I think a lot of them are still, ironically, are still stuck in the in the sort of Blair period. Yeah. You know, you've got people like Madison who are coming back in, and that Tony Blair himself made an intervention mm. the other day. Where he was talking about to do a rare intervention in politics about once a week these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it It is striking how much the you know these people are so stuck in the past, and they and they accuse the left of being stuck in the past, and it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it is striking. There are segments of the left that are. Don't get me wrong, but actually, a lot of the the energy behind the Corbyn movement was like really sort of rethinking a lot Mm. of the old. You know, how do we do leftist politics but for the 21st century? And that's why, in 2017 at least, it was so popular, because because they were doing that rethinking and, and sort of reassessing how class politics have changed. And all this idea that class politics have gone away is a little rubbish, right? Class politics will never go away as long as, as, long as there is the inequality of wealth yeah. and power. <laughs> as long as you, you know, as long as the we class have politics have changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, have changed significantly. And that's, yeah. um, that's something I think that Starmer doesn't get. Or the people around Starmer, because I'm not sure Starmer has any politics anymore. I really am just getting to the point where I think Starmer's politics are I wanted to be in charge, now I'm in charge, and I guess I'll just let my mates run things. I don't like it when people say nasty things about them to the press. Although apparently he's really committed on tuition fees. So like the one thing he is like got religion on is he hates tuition fees, mm. so I suppose that's something. Well there's this deeper there's this uh, there's the there's the other sense of the word ideology as as the the sort of deeper concept of it, the background. Uh, the the unknown knowns, as it were. I sent Zizek. Um, I sent Zizek the, is, is lumbering yeah, in the direction of this conversation. This, the, calling it un, an unknown known is something that I'm pulling from Zizek. Which is that, you know, people say that you have known knowns and known unknowns. Things that you know that you know. And things that you don't know, but you are aware that you don't know them. And then there are unknown unknowns. Things that you don't, you don't even know that you don't know them. 
yeah so so that's that's something that's already but you've got those three Zizek is adding the the idea of a fourth one the idea of um an unknown known something that you do know but you don't realize that you know it and that's a sort of working definition of ideology anyway that's what i was getting from Zizek. anyway that's not that's not important um it's the idea that he doesn't really have politics but that does just mean that he's a very pure expression of the received ideology of a place like Westminster. So he thinks that he's an entirely self-interested sort of person without any deep convictions. And that just means that he always follows the default ideology of an institution like the Westminster Labour Party. So that that's, I think, what explains why someone without politics has ended up on such a very specific mm. side of... Uh, I, think, I think, yeah... I think it, you know you've also got to remember that he was the director of public prosecution as well. So he doesn't hasn't just absorbed the politics of Westminster. He's also absorbed the politics of the Home Office to an extent, and of the of the you know the carceral state, which leads us on to something that you wanted to bring out, which was the recent um, the recent I don't know what to call it, the recent successful instance of direct action in Glasgow. Oh yes, mm, yes. So there was um, a pull in this memory. I don't have anything to read about it, but basically. Um, there is a practice that the Home Office uses, uh, um, which they call dawn raids. So basically, members of the security state raid your house at dawn and take you away and deport you if they consider you to be an illegal immigrant. This is a practice that is very controversial in Scotland. Um, it's opposed by most of the main parties in Scotland, including the SNP, but it is a power that is reserved to Westminster, to the, to the British Home Office. And so having these things going on in Scotland is quite a sort of flashpoint. And there was one that was happening in Glasgow very recently, and spontaneously some people decided in, in the local area, the neighbours of these people that were being taken away in the van, to form a ring around the van and so not let it drive away. And someone decided to post this on social media, and it blew up massively, to the point where thousands of people started turning up, refusing to leave for the rest of the day until these people would be released. And it became this this long-running story, and this long-running... Um, uh, it's kind of not a protest because it's not a protest it's a it's direct action it's, it's that there are people in this van that the security state's trying to take away and we're not going to let it happen um which ended up being successful they were released and allowed to go back into their homes i mean it started with one 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 individual who actually went underneath the van so that it physically couldn't move without it without being yeah. in danger of, of of crushing him which which obviously they then couldn't do um and he was under there for eight hours until the the the, the police relented and the the immigration people let the um let the two guys in the van go. Um, and he emerged he emerged after eight hours apparently to yeah. to a, a chorus of shouts of offers of pints and relationship proposals, <laughs> which is. Um, but yeah. I, I saw a video of it of him coming out yeah. of the van and then waving to the massive crowd, and it had a bit of a Nelson Mandela yeah, coming back from Robben Island feel to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it led to this, um, this sort of, um, uh, the sort of reverberation, which sort of relates back to what we're talking about—the Labour Party, whereby the um, uh, a member of Labour's NEC, the National Executive Committee, and uh, I believe the current candidate for the General Secretaryship of Unite, um, sort of tweeted that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, should have been deported instead of these people, and was therefore and was then suspended by the Labour Party. Yes. So he's this guy. Is, it's Howard Beckett. Is um, he's a de deputy general secretary of Unite, uh, which is one of the largest trade unions in Britain, um, and he's running to be the next actual general secretary, which is an election that's happening next year. And he's on the NEC of the Labour Party, the uh, governing body of the Labour Party. Um, 
Now, I think we can call this a bad tweet, right? Uh, because saying that a prominent politician with an immigrant background should be deported is insensitive, I think. Does it um, reveal the secret racism of Howard Beckett? No, I don't think so. I think it was just thoughtless, right? There's a long-running tradition of people saying that the Home Secretary should be deported, right? People said it about Theresa May, people said it about all different people. Because they're the minister in charge of deporting people, so people say, don't deport these people, deport you instead. Um, but he should have considered that it, that it could be interpreted a different way. Um, yeah. I do think it's pretty ridiculous that he's been suspended from the party. That shouldn't have happened, I don't think. I don't think there's really any consistent... No one's calling for him to be suspended from Unite either, though, which is odd. Because um, in what world is it good enough for Unite but not good enough for the Labour Party? It seems a bit strange. Or maybe members of Unite um, are just a bit more sensible. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What is um, the elephant in the room is that of the candidates running to be General Secretary of Unite, he is the one most hated by the Starmer leadership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he would be the um, he would be the most left-wing candidate to win and the most anti-Starmer if he were to win the General Secretaryship of Unite. Um... He's not the only, or even, I think, probably the main left candidate. The United Left slate didn't endorse him. He endorsed this other person who is more sort of a continuity Lem McCluskey figure. But he would, Howard Beckett would have been the let's take Unite and make it more aggressive towards the Labour leadership candidate. Um, and I think if it wasn't for that, he probably wouldn't have been suspended from the party over this. Yeah. I mean, there's there's the, the fact yeah, we... that, obviously, with the recent debacle over Andrew mm. Rayner... Um, yeah, a lot of Keir Starmer's position on on the NEC has become more fragile because obviously now Rayner and her allies are less likely to go along with what Starmer says. So now that this guy's been suspended, that's another that's one less vote can go against Starmer. And her allies is quite a lot. She's well connected. Yes. Oh yeah, very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so yeah, so he's still allowed to run for the general secretary um, position um, because it's not anything to do with the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, but he can't or sit at least in the NEC anymore. Disciplinary action. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So he deleted the tweet within half an hour of posting it and apologised unreservedly, and only afterwards was then suspended from the party, which seems a bit shambolic. Uh, it was also another instance going back to Angela Rayner as well, where he didn't find out from the party. He also found out from the press that he'd been suspended. <laughs> I mean, that's been a consistent theme of Starmer's leadership, which I think is really shabby. Honestly, you know. Yeah, it's very shabby. Yes. I mean, if we're taking this seriously, why this is what the EHRC report was supposed to fix, right? This does not scream independent disciplinary process, which was supposed to be the whole point of this. No, absolutely. And it demonstrates that Starmer doesn't really believe what he's what he's saying. He doesn't, you know, the leadership does not actually believe that this tweet means this person is a racist. If they did, they would, they would do it through the proper channels and make an example of him. It clearly demonstrates the fact that it's pure factionalism. I yeah. think. Anyway. I, I, it seems to me quite difficult to imagine there being much more disciplinary uh, action against him because what's going to happen once this gets to an NEC panel they're just going to review the evidence and they're going to go oh this doesn't really breach any party rules he's back in the party right it's exactly what's going to happen here is going to be what happened when Corbyn was suspended is that they're just going to have to readmit him relatively quickly because otherwise they'll get sued Uh, or they'll refer it up to the NCC and then they'll conclude the same thing right (laughs) They're probably not going to be able to expel him from the party. They might be able to give him a warning. Uh, especially given that he's the, he's, he's the Assistant General Secretary of, the, of one of the biggest, of Labour's biggest donor. Like he's, and he's not losing that position. So it would be a massive uh, um, ding-dong if they really did try to move against him in this way. Um, 
I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm just trying to find a way to tie this up. What's the message of this story? What is um, the message? The message is direct action can work. That, yeah, and that the current Labour leadership are still engaging in, that, that we should be careful yep. about what we tweet if we're running for elected office. Even if it's not necessarily revealing of an inherent racism. We should proofread things in, ca in case it, there's some kind of glaring insensitivity. Yeah, yeah. And the kissed armor is rubbish. Yeah, both both very aggressive towards the left. <clears throat> not interested in having um, an impartial yeah. Uh, yeah. disciplinary process. I mean, Peter Mandelson explicitly said that. When the EHRC report came out, Peter Mandelson said, no, I don't like this. We don't want an independent disciplinary mm -hmm. process. We want the leadership to be in control of the yeah. disciplinary process so that we can kick the left out. <laughs> so you've got to hand it to Peter Mandelson. Sometimes he does uh, sometimes just say things out loud that we all already knew, which is has a value. Uh, but also that they're pretty incompetent at it. I don't think it'll achieve much, this suspension. I think that's the message. Yeah, Those are the main bullet points. Good. It's good summing up. It's good summing up. One thing I meant to mention Jeffrey. earlier is uh, uh, during the elections, uh, the first non-binary mayor anywhere in the world, as far as I can tell, oh, was elected in Wales uh, to be mayor of Bangor. Nice. Yeah, which was just just a thing that happened that was quite cool. Um, can't remember. can't remember their name. Alex something, I think. Or Owen something. Owen J. Herkham. There you go. Uh, yes, they were elected to be mayor of Bangor. Um, youngest, youngest ever mayor in Wales, and first non-binary mayor, full stop, as far as I'm aware. So it's pretty cool. That is cool, yeah. They were chosen by their fellow councillors as well, which is less democratic than you might like, but also that's quite surprising. I, I, I can... Yeah, it's not a directly elected mayor. It's a it's a normal city council. Is it a unitary authority? Yeah. Ooh, anyway, with a question. council leader that called, that's called a mayor. Probably a city council. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, that's good. Right. Um, before we wrap up, which we will do shortly because we're over two hours now, and I wanted this to be a shorter one, but never mind. Um, <laughs> one thing that we do need to mention, I think, before we go, is the resurgence of extreme violence in uh, Palestine. Now, obviously, low-level violence perpetrated largely by the Israeli security forces against the Palestinian population goes on all the time but as many of you will probably know after some confrontations in Sheikh Jarrah where um, oh, yes. Israeli settlers were attempting to and were being backed by law enforcement to do so and the courts uh, literally walk into Palestinian people's houses and just assert that they owned them now um, that sparked some protests obviously as you might imagine which led to um, massive crackdown by the police in East Jerusalem and throughout the West Bank, and that in turn precipitated uh, a couple of rocket strikes from Hamas in Gaza, which were met with the usual ridiculous, overwhelming response of full-blown military strikes on civilian homes, hospitals, schools, and recently, uh, just before we started recording this, I noticed the uh, headquarters of Al Jazeera and uh, the Associated Press in Gaza were destroyed as well. So they're pretty indiscriminate targeting. Um, a number of civilians have been killed, including many children. Um, it's a disgraceful and, frankly, fascistic attack on an oppressed people, and uh, the lack of condemnation, the lack of condemnation by... It is absolutely appalling. The element that is always... So, <laughs> so there's a particular quality to the way that the... Um... 
the Western press tends to report on issues around Israel-Palestine, which is that there's basically a formula. So whenever there's violence, um, it's always the, the cycle of who started it, who's to blame, both sides have done violent things, uh, who could we decide who's right or wrong? And, and then just continue the status quo that carries on. And it's presented as a very unstable environment that occasionally flares up into violence because it's so damn unstable, which is kind of gives an overall picture that's not particularly accurate. It is unstable in the sense that it sometimes becomes suddenly more violent than the background amount of violence. But the overall trend is, in, is remarkably stable over, over decades of one side has an enormous amount of power and the other side has pretty much zero recourse to defend itself. Um, and the, the long-term effects that you would expect from that continue in the way that you would expect across many decades in a very stable uh, pattern. And then occasionally the Israeli military, as they put it, mow the grass and kill a load of civilians. I mean, the IDF tweeted the other day that they were literally doing it to strike terror. They used that precise phrase, hmm. which considering that their justification for their military action in the first place is that Hamas are a bunch of terrorists is a yeah. little ironic, don't you think? You know, maybe yeah. these people should have a little bit of fucking self-awareness. But of course, they're a set of colonial white supremacist fascist states. So of course they don't. They talk about using the same tactics that the um, the the Nazis used to crush the Warsaw Ghetto. I saw the, the IDF officers saying that they should use the same tactics against the Palestinians that the Nazis used against the the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. And I mean, I'm sorry. At that point, I just really don't know why anyone in the West is even willing to listen to these fucking people. Sorry, who said that? They... Uh, it was a it was an IDF. Sorry, the IDF uh, general, said that. This was a little while ago, but it was doing the rounds on Twitter, obviously. Oh yeah. I don't know. I'm just going to get angrier and angrier if I keep talking on about this. But yeah, I wanted to mention it, even though there isn't really a lot you can say other than here we go again. Because I, the the lack of condemnation from Western media and from Western politicians has been pretty deafening. Um, so one difference with this particular round compared to previous rounds like the 2014 uh, conflict and, and going back many years is that the resistance or the, the backlash against it among Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, and within the borders of what you might call Israel proper, of all different Palestinian groups, seeing it as a single struggle and uh, and trying to organise against it in a in a relatively unified way, is much more apparent this time round. So it's, there's there's a certain amount of a kind of organised resistance happening outside of the coordinates of something like the Palestinian National Authority, which is incredibly kind of um, generally speaking, seen by most Palestinians as a completely mm -hmm. useless institution, um, uh, is a kind of silver lining that you don't mm -hmm. normally get mm -hmm. in Israel-Palestine uh, stories. That's something that I've been told as well, is that, that a lot of Palestinians are really used to, is that any time something good happens, yeah, it's always absolutely. in the context of something really bad happening. <laughs> silver linings. You never, you never get a good story as a Palestinian. Yeah. You only get bad stories see, I saw bad stories uh, in with the early linings. phases of this latest conflagration. Um, uh, after the Sheikh Jarrah uh, expulsions, but before the recent uh, strikes on Gaza, um, I did see that um, you know there was a video going around of a protest in Nazareth, <laughs> which I don't know. For, for the 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 resonance of that just sort of take, took my breath away in a way that, as a non-religious person, I didn't really expect. Um, but to see a bunch of people um, from Nazareth sort of protesting against um, this sort of the violence of the Israeli state, I found quite moving. Yes. Um, and it has been it has been all across the board. Um, and there has been, I should say, a touch more um, condemnation by international actors than there normally is. I think, I think 
Biden made some milk toast statement. I think Starmer did as well. So it, you know, maybe things are, maybe this time there'll be a bit more backlash against Israel. I'm not holding my breath. I mean, what needs to happen is the Americans need to cut off all of their aid, particularly their military aid, um, aid until they pull out of Gaza and the West Bank. You know, they should just say, look, you're not getting another penny until you do this. Because um, that's the only leverage, it's yeah. the only leverage anyone has. Hmm. Which is quite unlikely. Because there's yes. a lot of broadly spurious stuff about... Um, I only say broadly spurious because there it, it is the case that lobbying happens, um, as it does with all different countries. And that Israel explicitly sees um, the kind of this soft power exercise as an important part of its foreign policy. Um, but beyond that, there's a lot of largely spurious stuff about the Israel lobby controlling other governments. But it's really, it's pretty much, it's the other way around, isn't it? It's that it's the, the American imperial state sees Israel as a forward base for its imperial interests. It's not about Israel controlling America. It's about America seeing Israel as a as a vehicle for American interests. I mean, that does give Israel an outsized voice yes. in sort of American foreign policy, but it's not it's not for the same reasons yeah. people often say. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it, you know, it's got to be noted that a lot of the people who support um, Israeli state violence against Palestinians are Christian Zionists, um, as were the people who advocated for the foundation of the state of Israel in the first place. It would never have yeah. happened without Christian, Christian Zionism, Zionism, because having a huge amount of anti-Semitism involved. Of course, massively. <laughs> the specific ideology yeah. of we need to get the Jews out of our country and put them and also. Else. So that yeah, the apocalypse exactly. can happen. Yeah, yeah it's a very totally. apocalyptic kind of theology to it. And you know, a lot of Palestinians are Christian. You know, there are a lot of Christian Palestinians. So they're not all Muslim by any means. Um, and you know, you know, it just goes to show the 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 white supremacy of the way that sort of right wing Christians um, will defend Israeli attacks on Palestinians, many of whom are Christian. You know, because most Israelis are, are and certainly you know, the people in power in Israel are, are white. And are really horrible to Jews who aren't, by the way. Uh, <laughs> disgraceful towards Ethiopian Jews, for example. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm interested in the ways in which this interacts with the particular sort of pre-existing prejudices and scripts of the Western media, of what kind of ways of thinking about this whole thing that are relatively foreign to people that actually live in the area, um, that get, uh, but that are pretty universally considered a frame of Western media. For example, this whole mm. war on terror frame. People sort of yeah. interpret any kind of Palestinian activism through this kind of, oh, mm -hmm. are they basically a sort of Al-Qaeda <laughs> yeah. type thing? Yeah. I mean, Hamas are linked with the Muslim Brotherhood, but they, I mean, they're nothing, they're nothing like Al-Qaeda. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, and, they, and they do violence and stuff, and they do attack civilians. That's worth condemning, but... Much more traditional Islamists rather than the... Al-Qaeda are part of the, the Salafi Jihadist yeah. movement. It's, it's, a... it's not that there's nothing to criticise about it on that side of things either, but it's it's stuff that doesn't really fit into a, into a, a war on terror frame. And yet it is always kind of pushed into one in Western analysis of this kind of thing. I think just because there's a limited amount of... Um, basically, because ma mainstream... The political economy of uh, mass media under capitalism is that any kind of critical analysis coming out spontaneously of uh, Western media is kind of... It's, it's just not... It's not structurally encouraged by the model of mass media that we have in liberal capitalist countries. So they just use whatever pre-existing script they already have to understand something that's really not got that much to do with it. It's a complex story that we don't really have a script for, but it's kind of, if you squint, you can make it look like the war on terror, so we're just going to talk about it as if it's the war on terror. Yeah. There's also the, the sort of persistent narrative that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is about religion. It broadly isn't, although there is 
there is the specific conflict over the Temple Mount, but beyond that, no, it's not. It's about colonialism and imperialism. Um, and there's also the the idea that, oh my goodness, it's just so complicated. Again, it isn't particularly. I mean, there's a long history, and to understand all of the nuance is would be quite complex, but you don't need to understand the entire history of the region in order to know that a much more powerful and heavily armed state oppressing violently marginalised refugees on its borders is bad. Yeah. Uh, the reason why it becomes complicated to talk about is because so many of the terms and concepts that you need to be able to speak meaningfully about it are themselves part of what's controversial in it. So it's very controversial, and the language that you use to describe it is controversial, and that makes it really complicated to talk about, even though it's not actually that complicated an issue. It's just very controversial. <laughs> um, it is um, important, I think, at some point to just do a quick uh, anti-Semitism is unacceptable segment. <laughs> It is the case that if you're anti-Semitic and you're, you've even got half a brain, which is quite unlikely, admitted, but um, <laughs> then you are going to try to frame your anti-Semitism as, oh no, it's just legitimate criticism of Israel. And you've got to acknowledge that that's going to happen. So this is why I think it's important to bring up people that are criticising Israel, but don't want to, it to be anti-Semitic, do kind of, because of that particular dynamic, have a responsibility to specifically say, we're rejecting anti-Semitism, that's racism, we're against racism for all of the same reasons that we're against any kind of racism. And it's important to recognise the reverse is also true. That if you're trying to justify the, the extremist um, uh, and brutal policies of the Israeli state, and you're going to try and stop people from criticising it, then you're going to try to frame your opponent's stuff as anti-Semitism, even when it isn't. Both of those things are going to happen. <laughs> and from the outside, and from just a sort of cursory aesthetic look, both of those situations are going to look the same. And sometimes people are doing both at the same time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of... It ends, it ends up in a situation where everyone, where both sides are doing both um, out of uh, a lack of recognition that both do happen. <laughs> both definitely happen. It would be amazing if they didn't happen. Um, and the, so the only response is to try to, for one thing, look at the evidence and to try to take a principled stance on the issues of both opposing the terrible actions of the Israeli state and of opposing racism against Jews when it, whenever it happens, which it does. Take a principal stance, follow the evidence when you're trying to work out which case is happening. It's the only possible yeah. response. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And the conflation of Jews with Israel or the Israeli government is something which is extremely wrong and is perpetrated by the Israeli government as well as by um, anti-Semitic bad faith actors sort of embedding themselves within the left, mm -hmm. who should be, of course, expelled wherever they are found. Yeah, I will leave some links in the show notes when I get to compiling them to places where people can donate to relief organisations and such, um, as I did when we talked about the uh, war in Armenia. Um, I don't really have anything more I want to say at this particular moment because I think I'm just going to end up shouting into the microphone some more, which is probably not the best use of anybody's time. Um, uh, does anyone else have anything they want to add on this or any other topic that we've talked about? I don't think so. Jamie? Oh, just the DUP, DUP are bad. But... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, I'm happy to, happy to yeah, happy to say that. <laughs> I don't like them. They are bad, aren't they? Um, okay. I think... Then we'll leave it there because that's two and a half hours and I've yep. got to edit oh, this yeah. bloody thing. So, 
thanks to Jamie for joining us for this one. It's been great to have you. And uh, next time we talk about Northern Ireland, we'll definitely have you back if you're available. Um, or for, yeah, or for another topic, if yeah, you're particularly interested not? in it. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. you want, really. <laughs> yeah. um, right. To everyone listening, uh, thank you for <laughs> thank you for sticking with it. <laughs> I know it can be a bit irregular and the episodes can drag on a bit. So if you do listen, we're very grateful. Um, hopefully, <clears throat> we'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Be excellent to one another. And viva la revolution.